Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Eero, and I am your host for episode 41 on September 9th, 2021. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. With each episode of Air Medical Today, we explore a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, and YouTube. The audio podcast is indexed on iTunes and the video version is on YouTube. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Air Medical Today website. If you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. Today, I am interviewing Mr. Mark Many, an international commercial photographer who has specialized in photographing air medical and critical care transport, including medical evacuation environments since 1991. Many of you know Mark from his photography for the Association of Air Medical Services, the Air Medical Transport Conference, the National EMS Memorial, and at several air medical programs and conferences from around the world. Before we get to the interview, I want to go over some feedback from previous episodes and provide some general updates. Remember that Air Medical Today is also a video podcast now, too. As always, you can listen to the podcast and now watch it on the new Air Medical Today YouTube channel. With the video podcast, you can sometimes see pictures that are referenced during the podcast. The link to the channel is on the Air Medical Today website. I apologize again for not being able to post to Pinterest, as Air Medical Today does does have many followers there. As I mentioned in the last podcast, their application programming interface or API limit is for only three posts a day. And as followers know, there are many more posts than that each day. Also on the Air Medical Today Instagram site, you can see all the posts with a URL to the news site, but the links are not clickable. This is just how Instagram works, unfortunately. If you have not listened to past podcasts, please take the time to do so. There is a wealth of information from some of the key leaders in air medical and EMS transport. Please tune in to these informative and timeless podcasts. I would also like to thank the followers of Air Medical Today on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, and YouTube. To date, Air Medical Today has 29,851 likes or followers, and it is increasing every day. Thank you. It is my pleasure to welcome Mr. Mark Manny to the podcast today. I have known Mark for many years from when we worked together on the Association of Aeromedical Services Communication and Public Relations Committee. Mark is an international commercial photographer who started in 1991. He specializes in photographing air medical and critical care transport, including medical evacuation environments. 
Mark is a Canadian citizen that has been doing work in the United States since 2001. He has done work for the Association of Air Medical Services, the Air Medical Transport Conference, the EMS Memorial Service, the Air Medical Memorial Service, and 50 air medical programs from around the world. Mark has a number of awards and has served on the board of several organizations. Welcome to the uh, Air Medical Today podcast, Mark. It's really great to, to have you here. Thanks, Ed. Great to uh, be one of your, your interviewees. Yeah, it's uh, always uh, wanted. I, I think I always say this and everyone that I learn new things and uh, certainly in talking to you beforehand, I've learned some new things. Um, also, Mark is going to show for those that uh, are watching the podcast, Mark's going to show some photographs as, as part of the interview. Um, and those will be coming up on the, the shared screen. So uh, uh, as I always do, uh, I'd like to get more, you know, background and information. Who, who, who's Mark Many, and wh where did, uh, you know, let's talk about your early life and, and things. So I know you're from Canada, specifically what, born in Saskatchewan and yes. uh, Canada and lived on a farm with your family in both Saskatchewan and Alberta. Um, what were your yes. early years like? Um, well, Ed, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a rich history of, a, uh, I always brag that I'm a farm kid and uh, being a farm kid, you know, you learn a little bit different things about work, life and, and uh, living. And, you know, so uh, my first seven years was uh, began in Saskatchewan. My, my father shared a farm with his brother and it was a mixed farm of grain and cattle. And we did not have chickens, pigs or horses, but that was the type of farm we, uh, they had. And uh, unfortunately, in, uh, in the mid early 1970s, things kind of went sideways and my father had to uh, leave that farm and he became a farm manager uh, on a farm beside Calgary, Alberta. So we came from a very rural environment in East Central Saskatchewan and moved to uh, a farm right beside the city of Calgary. Wow. So I had the unique experience of growing up on a farm right beside a large city, a large growing city um, that uh, Calgary was known in, in the 1970s as accepting the first and second and third waves of immigrants from Saskatchewan. And uh, that's where my father uh, had his work. My mom was, uh, you know, the housewife, but obviously a farm, farm wife that was preparing a lot of meals for hired hands. I was also going to uh, school at that time. And, you know, those were formative years. And when we moved to uh, Calgary in 1975, it, it wasn't easy, actually. Um, I remember the day, February 5th, 1975, when uh, that was my first day of school, into school, going into third grade. And uh, it was going to be tough for me because I came from an environment in Saskatchewan where I was surrounded by other family, other cousins. And my family in Saskatchewan was well known um, in that little community of Calvington. And uh, moving to moving to Calgary was tough. And I remember my mom saying, well, you know, you're going to meet a whole bunch of new friends um, at, at this new school. And I said, yes, but I didn't want to meet them all in one day. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the easiest time from the third grade to the ninth grade. Um, there was a lot of hiccups. Admittedly, I got picked on a little bit. I was maybe a little smaller for my stature. I did play hockey, um, but of course, being smaller, I got I got beat up pretty good. <laughs> and and um, you know, by the ninth ninth grade, I remember uh, having a pretty 
rough season where I, I broke a bone in my ankle. Then I broke my collarbone. Oh my uh, gosh. The game. And then, and then the same year I broke my thumb and, oh, and that sort oh of my ended God. my, my hockey career. Yeah. Your, your sports career. Well, wow. yeah. Yeah. No, a little sidebar uh, where I grew up in Saskatchewan and Kelvington, if there's any hockey fans um, from the eighties and nineties and two thousands, they'll recognize the name Wendell Clark. Wendell Clark was of the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs and he was, I went to kindergarten with him. Oh, his dad and my dad were friends. So oh, I did have a brush with hockey fame. Um, although Wendell never won the Stanley cup, uh, he did, you know, he's gone on to do very successful things and up to talk, reach out to him again someday. So little side. That's great. So was, was the school in Ses- uh, Alberta larger than the one that you were in in Saskatchewan? Or were you still in a rural? Uh, it was still community? a rural school. Um, yeah. Again, a unique uh, elementary junior high and high school that was situated beside the city. So you had a really interesting mix of farm families and then city families that would send some of their kids to the country school for what they believe might've been greater education, or they may have been troublemakers <laughs> and they had to be in, in our school. So it was an interesting mix. And so I had that culture of farm working and city exposure. So I could go to the mall. I could go to the latest movies but I also knew what it was to stay on the farm and, and work. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was a really unique influence for me to have that both urban and rural environment uh, in my formative years. And that is, that has trailed me for the rest of my life. Interesting. I, how, how is like farming in particular influence you, do you think from a value standpoint? Um, um, recognizing the environment. Understanding uh-huh. that, you know, the weather always changes. And so that that can be translated to photo situations where you're setting up for photography in a sunset. You can yes. guarantee that. Getting up early probably gets provides you with even better sunrises. But the urban environment means you sleep in. The country environment means you should get up with the, when the sun rises. Right. Uh, the farming, and it's the hard work and, and just uh, hard work that pays off. And sometimes you have to seed things and it takes years in, in an urban environment to make that happen. And in, I've found that the same way with, with my careers. I've planted a lot of seeds along the way and they've taken years for fruition. And uh, we can definitely expand upon that further in our conversation. Yeah, so um, is your family still farming or farm management? Yes, yeah, yeah. my dad uh, is now turning 85 this fall. And oh. still working as a subcontractor to another large farmer near Calgary. And uh, there's just no way to uh, get them off out of the field. You can take, take the man out of the field, but you can't take the field out of the man. And my dad returns every harvest to work for different farmers. And I just spoke with my mom yesterday and yeah, he's up to his regular 12 and 14 hour days of running the swather. Um, wow. You know, uh, he, he works well independently, which bodes well on what I do as well. And, uh, you know, because of, uh, he does, you know, he has some hard of hearing issues, so he works better independently. And as I, you know, as I've learned, he's pretty good at running a GPS machine better than I could. And he doesn't just listen to his machine when it's operating, he feels it. So he can feel a bearing going on the swather more than he could probably hear it or a sensor saying it. So it's, it's again, another trait that, you know, listen to your machine, feel your machine. And that's the same with my lighting and my camera. Yes. Interesting. So uh, I, 
I also found it when we were talking earlier that you said your photography career actually started in high school. So tell us how this happened and um, uh, what type of work were you doing uh, yes, well, in high school? Yeah, well, you know, based voted on the experiences of uh, third grade to ninth grade and being picked on a lot and trying to find my stride as, as all adolescents do. And perhaps I was a young adolescent because um, just because of a late birthday and my mother also putting me in kindergarten at age four, um, the 10th grade, um, you know, you, now you're a senior in high school, 10th grade, I, I uh, signed up for all, you know, all the academic classes, physics and maths and sciences, but I also signed up for the shop class because there's my farming influence, working with my hands and uh, working with wood. But I, the first unit I took was a photography unit. And so my instructor, Mr. Rawlinson and Mr. Wiswell, uh, they both said, well, do the photo unit first. That was the first one available. You'll work your way into woods later and perhaps even some welding, which, you know, ironically, as a farm kid, I don't weld and I should learn to weld. Um, but I took the photo unit in September, 1980. I got a, a B plus and Mr. Rawlinson said, well, you know, um, you remember Steve Sharp, the yearbook photographer for the high school yearbook, he's graduated and Mrs. Tuvey is looking for a, a new photographer and you should go talk to her. Well, I talked to Mrs. Tuvey and sure enough, they could use a photographer. So ultimately in the end, uh, Mr. Rawlinson said, well, you have access to all the darkrooms, all the cameras, and you can be the yearbook photographer. I'm, I'm actually kind of drafting you to be the yearbook <laughs> photographer. That's and great. That's, that's where it began. And uh, he said, you know, he knew I was a shy guy, but given holding that camera, I had a lot more braver. And he did say you could probably meet a lot more girls that way. And uh, <laughs> that's that's sort of where it started. And that may dovetail into further our conversation as well. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's fantastic. Um, were you nervous at all being all of a sudden the photographer for the yearbook or did you, did, were you confident? I was confident because I, I was quite shy, but I held that machine in my hands and I had to work independently and working in the darkroom independently. Um, I just ran with it and, and coached by uh, Mr. Wiswell and Mr. Rawlinson to continue that on. And they obviously finagled the course. So then I was a, a full year of photography course instead of having the photo unit, then going on to welding, then going on to shop. I, uh, I just did the photography full time in addition to my academics, because uh, my high school teachers allowed me, you know, a little more flexibility. But I remember my physics teacher, um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Wilson, and my biology teachers, um, Mr. Williams, they allowed some flexibility and they understood my, my efforts to work really hard on the yearbook and also on my academics. So I was a strong C student, but I did pass. And the physics do help me even today in understanding yeah, <laughs> what I'm doing. Yeah. And I stay in touch with my biology teacher, Mr. Williams. Yeah, that's great. Um, so uh, let's move on to college. You attended the Alberta College of Art and Design. I, think, I believe the years were 84 to 88. Uh, yes. How, how long did you know that you wanted to do photography professionally? Um, was it from the high school yearbook or yeah, uh, it was doing from, that? It was from the high school yearbook, but it also was, was the fact that... Um, um, in the summer of 1984, when I had graduated high school and I was signed up for the Alberta College of Art um, at that time, 
two weeks after I had graduated, I had a commercial photographer come out to the farm with an art director looking for a farmer to do some portraits of a farmer beside some grain bins. They drove into the yard from Calgary. Again, that influence of being close to a city on a farm. They drive in, they introduce themselves. They asked if they could take photos of my father wearing his baseball cap and looking like a farmer. Um, that photographer by the name of Giorgio uh, um, finished the shoot, you know, and they, they get back in his 300 ZX and I'm like, wow. Right. And he's like, I'm like, well, I'm signed up for the Alberta College of Art and I was a yearbook photographer. And he, Giorgio looks at me and says, well, why don't you come to the studio next week? I'm doing a little studio setup and, uh, you know, it's a little commercial shot and you could come and help me. Oh, great. That was a pivotal moment in meeting a professional photographer. Now, I could have run into a wedding photographer or I could have run into <laughs> a, a survey photographer, but I ran into a commercial photographer. Yeah. And that next week, I went to his studio in the basement of this old building in downtown Calgary, and I helped him with a, a shoot illustrating a Pepsi bottle with a cap blowing off. And I was the guy with the pencil that stuck it inside the, the bottle. <laughs> I stepped back. He takes a picture of the four by five hooked. And that's where uh, I got onto the commercial photography vein. And that gave me an advantage when I entered the Alberta College of Art and Design that September, I already had been working in commercial photography commercial, yeah. as an assistant. And, and that influenced my Alberta College of Art and Design program starting in the second and third and fourth years, because the first year was basic art, which many of us admission admittedly would grumble about having to do finger painting and, and sculpture and, and, and figure drawing. Well, maybe not complaining about that, but um, that first year was formative in getting an Alberta College of Art student ingrained into art. And then the second, third and fourth years, we, it was a more of a commercially motivated uh, photographic arts program at the Alberta College of Art. Yeah. And so that was, a, there was all kinds of different art uh, sections that you could go into and you went into the photography. Yes. But, yeah. yeah. Oh, I knew I was going, you know, sure. they, they had sure. the, uh, uh, you know, an elective unit in the first year photo photography. I got an A plus in that, of course. Right. And that was influenced by, you know, my commercial photography, my, and my yearbook photography. So, um, you know, interesting sidebar when I was in, when I was in, uh, and still in high school, my mom actually phoned the college and spoke to a, a photo instructor by the name of Dan Gordon. And apparently they had this secret conversation when I was still in high school. And he advised, yeah, you know, for me to follow it, but to work hard at it. And uh, um, little did we know, you know, there's major changes coming in photography in the you know early 2000s. But I did adapt and did survive. But it, that, you know, that, that, took, uh, that took some time. So... So your parents did support you in going into photography and not, and not farming. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Um, you know, based on my dad's experiences with his own farm, um, the amount of hard work there was on the farm, you're battling the weather, you know, different elements that, that, that you have to, you have to deal with. And, and so, um, you know, as a result, I knew that, you know, there was, there was no way that I was probably going to go into farming. I did, though, once we concluded art school in 1988, and I was still finding my way, and I knew I was still assisting other photographers, one including a very influential one that, that assisted me with lighting. His name was Rick Kokotovich, and Rick was friends of Giorgio, the fashion photographer. Rick taught me a lot about lighting, and Rick was uh, 
self-taught, but he pursued a lot of photography work with other photographers in New York City. He translated that to me. And Rick is still a practicing artist now in Mexico. And someday I'm going to go visit him post-COVID in uh, Merida. Oh, that's great. So what were the uh, key things that you learned in college that have influenced you? Commercially based photographic arts program, less art, right? The fine arts program is at the University of Calgary. I was pursuing more of the commercial. And so they taught us different skills to survive as commercial photographers. Both, you know, if you needed a part-time job processing film, well, we learned how to do C41 and E6. Now, some of your listeners, older listeners will definitely understand what that is. Your younger ones, well, that was that was back in the film days when there was only 36 shots per roll. Yes. Get her right. And the exposure relatively accurately, too. Um, our, our college also did teach me art and gives me a sense of of, you know, different approaches to art and an appreciation of art, um, which, you know, has led me to different paths here now, you know, in my 50s with 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 the recognition of art. Uh and just hard work. You know, there's a peer pressure in art school to just keep on working. They'd have a pub at night once a week. We'd all go drink a few beers and then we'd go run back to the darkroom and go to work and turn the music up. We didn't go on to the discotheque like maybe my fellow university students did. Yeah. There was a peer pressure to work. And as a result, there's a core group of six of us that still stay in touch, that wow. have all still pursued photography in different, different variations. And they're all working. Uh, uh, in most photog- are still working in photography. Wow, that's great. That, yeah. That's that's nice to have that that peer group uh, that Absolutely. you work with. Yeah. yeah, one of them is my best buddy Waldy, who is my retoucher now, and an incredible photographer on his own. Yeah, great. So let's move on. Post graduation, then you assisted several commercial photographers, um, and before starting out your own business in 1991. What types of projects did you work on and what did you learn from, from these photographers that have helped you? Well, post-graduation was, was uh, I finally got a studio rolling on my own in about 1991. Right. And because and, I graduated in 88, I, uh, I even, you know, during that time in 89 and 1990, I went back to the farm in Saskatchewan to help my uncles with harvest. And that oh. was also an influence. And that influence also allowed me to pursue some personal f- photography projects. And one of them was photographing farmers um, and that uh, photographing farmers in their environment was influenced by a very important uh, photo, photo project called In the American West by fashion photographer Av- Richard Avedon. And his were a series of portraits of farm workers and different people in the West on a stark white background. That influenced me. And that was one of my, one of my influences that I, that was one of my graduation pieces is, is photographing um, people on a white background. And, you know, I have an example here of, of uh, what that is. And I could show you here. Yeah. There you go. Why the white background? What was the... Um, he wanted to show the starkness of, of just the person on, on a white background. Now, I see. Um, here, this is Bob Sears, who is a, work, a farmhand that worked with my father on, on the same farm. I brought him in the studio and got this sort of action and got a conversation going on a stark white background. And so this was my grad piece. And this influenced my, my work to, um, 
further on when I had my own commercial studio and I still wanted to pursue my art tangent. Um, that's, 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 was a very important um, aspect of what I was, what I was trying to do was continue with some art. So in that particular shoot or in others, did you take several pictures? Cause I noticed you caught him in a, yeah, you know, yeah. rubbing, rubbing his eye. And yeah. so that must've been the one that you liked. Uh, That's the one I liked. It was in action. There was cigarette was, you know, just finishing off his, his finger. And I had other parts of him looking at into the background nowadays. And I still have those negatives. I think, there's a different value in, in when you pull up old imagery. And so I will dig up those nags and there will be definitely something in the context of what today have, has that Interesting. staring straight into the camera, maybe even closer, may also be a secondary shot when I revisit that, that shoot from 1988. Um, I may revisit that and I've still got those nags. But yeah, the white background was a starkness and in the American West was a definite influence to my work. And that show was sponsored by the Eamon Carter Museum in Fort Worth, which we happen to be having the AMTC in later this year. Yes. And there's a connection that I'm working on to go and see some of those originals in a private, uh, private study room. I've wow. asked, asked to see that. And they recognize my influence, the influence of that on my work. And they've granted me this private showing for two hours this fall. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. What, you know, there was other aspects, right? And yet you asked me about, you know, my commercial work and, and, you know, here's another example where I did love working in the studio and working with just found objects. And so uh, I will show you an image here of a series that I did for a glass recycling company. And, and uh, this glass recycling company was called, called vitreous and what had happened here was the art director was very busy in terms of uh uh getting this annual report done and she just came up to my studio with a box of recycled bottles and make some art with this and with this image um i just took the colored bottles i cut the cut holes in the in the bottom where they were sitting on and i shone a light up through them i hung my camera upside down worked with the selective focus back in back in uh back in the 90s and which is you know a big deal now and i this was for the vitreous and report i received an award for this one um a local award for commercial photography on on uh, on this particular particular subject uh, just taking regular recycled bottles and and uh turning it into art so again the alberta college of art influence like the color and lighting with that. Yeah. It's very, very nice. Um, let's move on and talk about how your business is set up. Uh, are, are you incorporated or self-employed? And, you know, is there a difference? Uh, I know you do a lot of work in the United States that we'll talk about, but is there a difference in how you set things up in Canada versus the U.S.? Not really. You know, in the end, I began as a, a commercial corporate photographer and ended up getting incorporated as advised by my legal representation in Canada, right? Um, as photography and the business changed and things got digital and the market got extremely tight, um, I continued to, as an incorporated photographer in, in the 1990s. That incorporation then assisted me in, in, in obtaining a US work visa in 2002. That incorporation was the basis of a, creating another little incorporated company 
in Colorado to essentially, you know, which you can't do anymore, self-sponsor yourself to get a U.S. work visa. I so see. that incorporation, those technical details were, you know, it, for paper, it's what was required. It was also required for, you know, massive growth. So if you had several employees, you get in into different tax modifications, both Canada and the U.S., very standard um, as we went. Leading on in the future, in the future years, I ended up just becoming a sole proprietor based on some of the struggles I faced with, you know, trying to grow a business and, and the changing, changing atmosphere that I was, I was existing in. Um, I had to downsize a lot. I had a huge studio in the 1990s, um, two different studios. Um, the first one being an old town hall and I had half of it and I lived Bohemian style where I lived on the stage and I drew the drapes at night <laughs> oh, and I lived on the stage. Right. And now that we need a picture dark. of. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was dark in there when, it, when, when I was working, but it was an old town hall. And uh, we were known for this one time where we had, you know, my two studio partners, we had a rave. We filled that joint and it was incredible. And then the, the police and fire came and shut us down. But that was a, that was a big deal in a uh, big deal in, in uh, at that time. I've further on, on the business side of things, a sole proprietorship is how I've worked both in Canada and then in the United States, I had to be sponsored, right? Either by a company that I created or further on by other individuals under their company. And that was following the rules of the INS. So I, um, I've had a work visa since 2002. Again, side story in that, it was my year 2000 millennial resolution to how was I going to work in the United States? Because that was the golden land. And who, who doesn't like being in California in the wintertime? Growing <laughs> up in Saskatchewan. And right. Right. So, so uh, year 2000, I start initiated the paperwork. I didn't get, it took 18 months to get it all together. I've got the same lawyer I have now. And we submitted everything in uh, August 2001. So 20 years ago, the little company that I began in Colorado, I, the name of it in, that I named in July 2001 to self-sponsor myself was called Photo 911, Photo 911. All this paperwork gets submitted in August 2001. 9-11 comes around. That's and right. Had, That's right. We had, yeah, we had radio silence for several months. Then uh, in March of 2002, we got additional questioning suddenly from the INS asking, why is this civilian want to just ride in helicopters only? Yeah. So it wasn't until June 2002 I was awarded the yeah, that's yeah, because we're coming up on the yeah. 20th anniversary of 9-11. Yeah. And yeah. There was questions about why I wanted to ride in helicopters and not be a pilot. And and uh, I was under the, under the scrutiny, obviously. Yes, yes. Um, for a few months there, just by the the, the dumb luck of submitting a you know photo nine one one or photo nine eleven as the company name, and that drew lots of red flags. So by two thousand two, I was awarded the visa, and that was an O one U S work visa, and I've continued on that vein ever since. I see. Now, has it changed though? Since you you don't have that company in the U.S. anymore, right? No, no. I ended up getting self-sponsored uh, sponsored by other entities. Um, you know, over the course of years, and that has changed. And you know, my latest sponsor was with uh, Kincaid International, which was mm -hmm. Sandy Hutton's uh, Sandy. company. Sandy yeah. being you know 
you're uh, you know of her and of course past Ames president and right. very active ASNA president um, and still active in the uh, in the air medical and medical community to this day and further exploits are are she's working on with her husband Kevin. Yes, right. So um, you weren't you were telling me that you uh, had applied for something special now another types of work yeah yeah um, well you know what is another, that exactly another, another what i applied for was now uh in 2019 i applied for my green card and advice from the, the same lawyers that i've been working with since year 2000 they advised for me to go to the root of a specialty green card based on my skill and talent not the kind of green card where you marry somebody, not the green card where you bring in $5 million, but the specialty skills one that probably is utilized for a lot of uh, talented people, scientists, diplomats, actors, and artists. And so that's called an EB1, E category. And so I, I, uh, I finally got all that paperwork submitted and you know a couple fits and starts on that. But uh, just as of two weeks ago, I was notified by the INS in Nebraska that I had pro- been approved on stage one of that specialty green card. So oh, that's good. the toughest one. Um, How many stages one. are there? There's three. And yeah. you know, the next one is an interview to prove that I'm Mark Matty. And yeah. the third one is just getting you set up, set up for uh, paperwork and such. But the first stage, which included, you know, basically almost two years of paperwork and gathering letters, reference letters, letters, which even I received from you, Ed, you know, in the past. Yes. Thank you, yes. Right? We use that as evidence to show a, a consistency that I had people giving me reference letters in 2007. Thank you, Ed. Yeah. Um, and so it was. It was about an inch and a half of paper that we submitted to the INS in Nebraska, and it landed on somebody's desk with a thud, obviously, and uh, I was approved. And and so a very proud moment. Um, thank you to the United States Immigration for allowing that to happen. I've got a lot of work ahead to to uh, continue that, but I've made some people proud. And I'm also, that also, you know, perhaps some of the evidence I presented, which we'll discuss further is my future exploits with the city of Solana beach. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I always find interesting is you know, people talk about health insurance and how the health system in the U S is set up in, in Canada. Um, so how do you handle it in, in Alberta, you're covered under the, the province's plan, right? So you don't have to, um, does that coverage come, does that cover you in the United States too, or do you have to uh, get special insurance? Well, only partially. I get special travel medical insurance, um, like most Canadians do when they travel. And I have a special plan that I, you know, it's a 60 day plan that I can extend up to 333 days. So basically it's a, you can get a one year plan and you, you pay on that for all medical emergencies and such. You're supposed to call when you know, you're sick and, and they advise which hospital system that you're supposed to go to. That's step one. Um, step two, if you don't are not able to call, well, then they'll just figure it out. The third step of that unique travel medical insurance, which is the repatriation, which circles back to air medical transport, is that they have a very, very generous uh, repatriation air medical transport um, clause. And, and they allow, and I've, I'm going to recheck it again, because every time I ask, they have a $5 million allowance for air medical transport and repatriation costs, Wow, which is, which is incredible. And, you know, I give the example of, well, what if I broke my leg in Antarctica? They said, well, 
you're up, you know, if you're insured and it's all falls the rules, we'll come pick you up. And there you go. So, so this um, is Canadian insurance, however, it's Canadian, Canadian travel insurance. Yeah. Canadian travel medical insurance. Is it through the Canadian. province? No, it's it, through a private, private insurer. Oh, it's private. Okay. Yeah. And so their goal is to provide emergency. So cover us or anywhere you are and then get you back into Canada though, if it's yes. a longer term. Yeah. yeah. Then for care underneath the Alberta healthcare plan. Right. Yes. Right. So okay. Repatriating to your, your home province, because, you know, as, as it is down in the United States and as it is in Canada, there's 49 different countries down here and up in Canada, there's, there's also 10 or 12 different countries as well with their own, their own travel, their own medical plans and, and yeah. unique attributes to that, which um, that's a whole new air medical today podcast. Yeah. I, well, it's difficult, man, you know, navigating the U S plan, even as U S citizens on sure. what's covered and what's not. Understood. So um, you, you uh, got involved with um, sort of the air medical piece through stars um, yes. there in Calgary. Uh, they were named as what program of the year in 2001. And um, so that was your introduction to, to the U S tell us about how you got yeah. involved with stars and then got involved with the aeromedical photography. Well, stars, stars is an amazing story. Um, as a commercial photographer based in Calgary, Alberta, um, stars air ambulance program had begun um, a few years earlier and we're in the process of developing a fundraising calendar and campaign. So they approached an ad agency in Calgary and that agents, ad agency reached out to two photographers to do portraits of patients and their stories to illustrate the, the new STARS calendar that was coming out, um, the revamped one in 1996. So uh, they reached out, uh, the ad agency reached out to both Rick Kokotovich and myself to do photography at the STARS basis. I was sent to Edmonton, so here's my first experience about beginning to travel, right? and shooting air medical, Rick did Calgary. Calgary was the busier base and Rick got his portraits and I got my portraits of patients. Then they offered Rick and I the opportunity to do a ride along, be a third rider on, wow. on the ships. Rick sat you know, in the flight lounge for three days and he didn't get any flights. I sat for my first day in Edmonton, getting to know my crews, You know, unique pilots with their unique stories, unique air medical people, um, air medical crews, which I'm still friends with today. Second day, I get a mission. Wow. Second day, I get a second mission. And that second mission was in late afternoon. And it was a scene call southwest of Edmonton near Devon. And I flew out there. I've got all, I'm all geared up. And, you know, I'm in the flight suit. It's a pretty unique kind of setting. They get to the scene call. They land on the highway. There's a crashed, broken car right in front of me. I'm on a little grass knoll getting shots. And I'm like, wow, you know, bang, bang. The paramedic runs up and he says, we can't take you. There's two patients. You're going to have to stay here. I'm like, okay, no problem. So I keep shooting, get shots as they take off. It's all quiet. 20 minutes later, the news trucks show up. And I'm like, wow, I got the shot. They don't. There's something here. If I ride along with these guys, I can get better shots. Right now, I couldn't run to the newspaper that night and publish it, right? Because you know my agreement with Stars and patient confidential sure. nature yeah. at that time, right? And you know it was a, 
it was a unique time, right? Um, at you know, as Stars and Stars Edmonton were were getting getting their uh, getting a toehold within the province, and even they faced political issues with different different entities around there, right? But you know, the Flying BK and that dedicated two pilot operation was something else. That photo um, that I got was was just something else, and and uh, uh, you know, as a result of some of this that I got with stars, uh, I cannot, you know, I cannot get, you know, that shot, I cannot, I cannot repeat. I, I haven't repeated. And so here, this is the shot here that I got. Um, this one here. That oh, shot. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I, this was my second mission ever. Right. And I was, I was like hooked and I got the helicopter in the background. I got this action going on. The guy's holding a saline bag in his, in his mouth. We got first responders all around. It was, it was quite the shock, right? Unfortunately, there was some medical or some, I believe, political issue on it and they had to keep it in the can. They could not release this image, could not release it. This, this image stayed, stayed in, um, stayed in my, uh, archive for years and the stars archive it wasn't pulled out for 19 years until oh yeah it showed up i was able to get permission from stars you know stars management and the communications director deborah deborah tetley and i got permission to to uh to publish this this image and and that image showed up here it's a two-page spread in the legacy of the Asna book, the legacy of Canada. yes, yes, and we'll talk and about that. Yeah, that was the first time this image was published, and so we can speak to this book a little bit further. But that's my very first air medical image that I had success on my first day, September 26, about 30, 30 in the afternoon, nineteen ninety four, and I was hooked. And yeah, it's a what, what was what was the issue with the photograph, Mark? With the because it's not it's not a privacy thing. You can't even see the patient. It wasn't a privacy thing. I I you know based on my twenty five years or plus more of experience with air medical now, I think it was a territorial issue. I'm not sure. Of you know, I don't know. I I'm not sure. I didn't want to push it at the time. I was a brand new photographer to the project. Sure, sure. You know, it was my second second flight, and I pulled this image off. Um, and I just didn't want to push it. And as a result, I believe, and this was one aspect of why I mix well with air medicine, is I'm not coming in as a photojournalist. Um, I'm coming as a subcontractor that understands patient care, that is empathetic to flight nurses and flight paramedics in the back, where I've seen them bust their humps, yep. saving a life, even when they arrive to the little country hospital or in the back, when they're sweating bullets and I've been there and I've photographed it and I've also put the camera down and assisted with patient care, either just holding the iStat or doing even CPR while somebody's trying to catch their breath and I'm in the back of a BK. Yeah. That has led me to sometimes you just can't publish an image right away. Yeah. It's, it's a, I think it's an amazing experience uh, riding along, you know, as a CEO of a number of programs, that's something I always did. And uh, you really get to see 
the crew in action, I, even before they get to a scene or, or a hospital, what they're going through in their heads with what they need to have and available and, and just the communication between uh, the two caregivers, uh, uh, nurse and medic or nurse nurse, um, or just nurse, nurse RT. But I mean, it's just amazing watching that. So I, I think uh, superhuman ability, yeah, yeah. Uh, energetic, and they're doing a mind meld. These crews, I can tell when they have worked together for years, and you can see it, and you've seen it in examples at, at AMTC where you know what crews are always consistently winning the Sim Cup, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, I know. People read each other's minds when they're working. And, yeah. you know, putting a plug in for stars. Yeah, that's why they may come in first, second or third consistently for 20 yes. years. Yeah, they have. That's that's Combat been a survival flight and that crew. And everybody knows who that is. Yes. Watching of AMT. Those guys could telepathically talk to each other. And yeah, it's I, it's it's amazing. The, the teamwork. And so so, so let's let's talk about. um uh, air medical transport conference because when you came you came down with stars when they got the uh, program of the year and that's how you and I were first introduced because you were asked to be on the uh, uh, communications and public relations committee that um, I that, uh, chaired at the time. So. That was my first introduction to Ames because uh, yeah. stars had been selected program of the year in two thousand one. Ames had asked to send some photos of stars. Um, for their brochures and such for the promotion and the promotional video. And so, uh, yeah, in conjunction with 9-11 happening, um, we were the first big conference to, to get rolling again in Orange County, if we all remember that challenging year. Um, so I, I traveled down with stars. I started meeting some people. I met Blair Began for the very first time. Yep. Um, uh, didn't realize she was that tall, but I've got <laughs> I've got a cousin by the name of Blair and he's, he's more of a farmer. So I had my Blair's mixed up and so <laughs> Blair was a delightful surprise. Uh, meeting an amazing group of like-minded air medical people, the same ones that I would be flying with in the cab at stars. I was now meeting the American equivalent and that motivation and that excitement to the, to the air medical community was, it hooked me. That was another watershed moment at the, uh, 2001 AMTC. And that's, yes, that's where I met you guys. And I pondered about joining the air medical, uh, the AIM CPR committee, and you guys had a brochure. So I, I filled out the brochure, faxed it back when I arrived back in Calgary, asking more questions. I was just curious. And <laughs> Blair uh, faxed me back and said, well, welcome to the committee. I'm like, huh? <laughs> yeah. You were my first chair. Yeah, yeah, John. I know that that uh, that first chair was a hard driver. I know. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we did some great things. You know, Tammy Chapman, um, Tammy, Glenn, uh, Glenn Roger. I mean, there was just uh, a number of people that you know are still close uh, friends of mine uh, to yeah. this day. Um, but uh, we did some great things, and it was fun having you part of that uh, committee. I think the other thing then that that led to was doing the host program photography. And this was at the Air Medical Conference, having that kind of initial video photography of the host programs. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Well, that was based on the fact that the I had seen the, the promotion materials that Ames was putting out for the AMTC. And 
there was no air medical photography. And so based on my new conversation with my new friend, Blair Bagan, the Ains CPR committee, I said, you need to build an archive of imagery so you would have photos to illustrate your, your brochures that are yours and that are reflective of our, our community and not stock imagery because that was also some of the challenges that I was facing as a commercial photographer was the abundance of stock, growing stock photography, but it wasn't truly accurate of a very, very niche community like ours. So the Ames uh, CPR committee led by my good friend, Eddie Rowe and, and Tammy and Glenn said, why don't we send, you know, create a program where Mark goes out early to meet the host programs. Yes. And I was like, I'm into that. And I like travel. And so that, that began for the year 2002, which would have been Kansas city um, for me to travel all the way to Kansas city as a kid from Saskatchewan with camera in hand and, and initiate a program to photograph, I believe three different air medical programs that were providing volunteers for the AMTC and we would provide them with some photos and they would get photo recognition of our conference. Yes. So yeah. I remember that time flying into Kansas city that night through a thunderstorm, like what am I getting myself into? <laughs> and, and the first morning standing in the hotel lobby, waiting for this person to pick me up, to take me to life flight Eagle. That person was none other than, than Seth, Seth Myers. Yeah. And, and, Seth has gone on to many, many big things. Seth is, and his wife, Denver, I consider great friends, but he was the first American program director that I met on this program. And, and he facilitated helping me make greater photos for Life Valley Eagle and the other programs too, because you get on the phone and say, you know, there's this guy here and Children's Mercy Hospital. I got in the door with that. And that even led to other, other future, future jobs with Children's Mercy. Yeah. Great place in my heart for Kansas City. And those yeah, and, and, and those, those uh, always, we always look forward to that because it was always the sort of the beginning of the AMTC to sort of tell the yeah. host, uh, give the yeah. host program some recognition, you know, and welcome them to the city that you were in. So yeah. further developed yeah. into something that Tammy and Glenn produced, which was an opening session video. Yes, yes. And it was trying to welcome the attendees who would see some familiar faces or old faces um, or young faces uh, up on the big screen at the opening session. And that was our introduction as well to welcome people to the uh, host city. So that began in 2002. And as we, the, the program developed, they sent me out even earlier. And I, as a result, you know, both with the CPR committee and Ames, I almost became an unofficial ambassador for Ames. Um, you know, welcome, you know, noting to people that the AMTC was coming up in their, in their host city and just explaining, you know, what I was doing. And I was, you know, being the Canadian, being perhaps neutral, I was just, you know, not naively, but just innocently going into these programs and photographing everybody. I didn't really understand the competition nature. There really wasn't any at my level anyway. Um, and I just was making friends across the United States, across the continent, because as the AMTC would travel, so would I. And, and, delightful memories cincinnati tampa um, yeah austin i you know i remember you know and great memories at the austin amtc right ed yes yeah we won't show those photos no. um um so uh this led into um uh you doing some work for 
air medical programs. I think you told me you've done work for like 50 programs. Yes. I didn't realize that. I, I know um, I had you come uh, to Duke Life Flight because we needed uh, some photos uh, for what we were doing uh, for our program. Um, so what, what did you learn from these projects? And, um, you know, how has that uh, changed over the years since you didn't do all 50 programs in one, one year? Yeah. Um, oh, I've seen multiple changes right off the top. You know, I had the privilege to be able to visit these programs as an Ames representative. That was the opening door, right? Yeah. As that Ames unofficial ambassador, I was able to go in and meet people from different programs because Ames would make the call, open the door, and I would I'd walk through it. And so, uh, yeah, at least 50 programs and different types of programs, right? Everything from programs that I recognize that were similar to STARS to other programs that are very small and independent programs to even, uh, you know, uh, municipal and government funded programs like the Maryland State Police. Yes. Yes, so a vast array of different aspects of how air medical transport was operated. And I was a student of that. And I learned multiple ways of how things were operated. I sat in different places in the helicopter and, and uh, had great experiences, great experiences with, you know, even getting bumped, you know, um, I've been bumped several different ways off of air medical flights. And, you know, one was, you know, with a, a program in British Columbia, the BC Air Ambulance Service, I got bumped off a fixing flight on Vancouver Island one time. And I had to figure out my own way home. <laughs> I had to take commercial home. Ironically, I beat them because they had a second flight. And, and uh, I, I, you know, took commercial home to get back to Vancouver. Yeah. Another time, bumped in Texas and I didn't know where I was. Um, and, you know, many deputies have given me rides home. This one deputy in, in outside of Austin said, well, I'm asking, well, where am I? He goes, oh, I'll let you know in a minute. <laughs> Trading photos of skid marks because his digital camera battery went dead. So I'm shooting skid marks for him on the, on the road. And he goes, well, here, I, I'll let you know where I'm at. And we start driving. And we come up to a sign, first stoplight, and it's nameless. That's the name of the county. That's the name. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he was correct. It was, you know, there is no name here. Um, yeah. you, know, another, you know, just getting bumped and making friends of deputies on the side of the road, because how are you going to get home? And, and uh, I took a Greyhound bus one time in Canada. I had my helmet, and my camera with me, and I, I had to get on the Greyhound bus. And people are like looking at me as I'm walking down the aisle and I'm in my flight suit and, and my helmet. And they're like, where did you come from? <laughs> yeah, I just one time. So I, what I always uh, like about your photography, because you've, you know, had some uh, expos of, of the, the different uh, photography and then also on the host program, but the angles that you get are incredible. And you're showing those teams in action, which I think is really important rather than just everybody standing in front and, you know, smiling. Um, how did you develop that? I mean, it's almost, you know, like Hitchcock-ish, you know, the, the angles that you're, you're taking with the. Well, you know, Ed, that, that's, that's, uh, that's being a photographer embedded with your, with your crew, like a war correspondent. You learn your crews, they learn about you. You don't come in like a bull in a China shop, like a commercial photographer would, because perhaps a commercial photographer has to answer to a, a client that needs images by the end of the week. 
I would be going in as a photojournalist with a commercial tangent, meaning that I wouldn't, I have somebody to answer to, to create a good image, but I don't need it by midnight to hit the press deadline. That different pressure then allows you to meet your crews, they get used to you. There is an important safety aspect too, that I believe that if you're with the crew, they need to know you're not going to go by the tail rotor. They need to know that you're not going to do something dumb. They need to know that you're not going to photograph a patient's face. Right yes. Away, right. These kind of aspects, there has to be a trust built. And sometimes that, that takes a mission or a, a flight or two to build that trust with the crew. And so if you're embedded and by this, you know, you're on your second mission with a crew, um, they trust you and they will open up better for you. Um, a caveat to that too is, Air medical crews and pilots make terrible models. Terrible. They they <laughs> and if you ask them to act, they 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 can't do it. But when they're focused and when they're in the moment, yes. they can do it. And then you become invisible. And yeah. partial partially the effort to become invisible is not to get in the way of patient care, to get photos that are in the spirit, HIPAA compliant when you're capturing, and and to not in impede any safety aspects and so that's one aspect the other secret is is always going low i always like to shoot low one so then you can't identify a patient because they're up on a stretcher and two we are flying rotary so if you shoot low, you're going to see rotors and yes. during, during patient care i love hot loads right and they, they take a lot of work and you're getting the best position is usually in the exhaust area you know the the four o'clock or the you know the the eight o'clock position, not near the tail rotor, gaining the trust of the pilot, of course, right? To get that shot and get those spinning rotors. And that's not easy to do. You can set it up and, you know, sidebars to set up shots. Again, I love my flight crews, but they just do not make the best actors. They will forget things. They'll forget to put gloves on. They will never forget to put gloves on or any medical procedures when they're doing an actual transport. I, I've only seen a couple of boo-boos. I have reshoots, commercial reshoots to prove when we're trying to set something up that they will forget things. They'll, yeah. they'll forget the IV, they, 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 gloves. I've, I've many shoots reshooting. Why did we forget the gloves, right? So that is, you know, that HIPAA compliance and my low angles and my action aspects developed, crafted from gaining the trust of your pilot and your medical crews. Um, is the key and then you know when shift change comes you already get an automatic introduction to the the night crew coming on and the trust is built but it takes a day or two yeah really when you do uh shoots how long do you usually stay at a program i would like to stay three or four days allowing yeah. me to do a, a sunrise or sunset setup shot but also yep. to be embedded with the crews yep. um it's very rare that i've ever not mixed correctly with a crew it Never, not with an air medical crew. Pilots and I have sometimes knocked heads a little bit just because they don't understand what I was trying to do, or they believe that I'm a photojournalist and I got to get the shot because I got to get something published at midnight. Um, but that's been pretty rare. Now that you know I'm getting longer in the tooth, I know how to handle some of these pilots um, and appease to them. Some of my, you know, which we can dwell on further. I had different ways to introduce myself to pilots with some of my other types of work that I used to do in calendar form. Yeah. Yes. Oh yes. We'll talk about that. So um, you, uh, when did you get your own 
flight suit and helmet and everything. How how far into that? Right out of the gate. That was part of my Did uh, you? Yeah. introduction to the United States. I felt because I couldn't borrow a STARS flight suit, right, you know, and wear STARS colors, I ended up getting a, a custom-made flight suit with, um, with, you know, with a helmet that I painted black as well, because black, not just that you look cool, but it reflects less in shots, right? Yes, so, yes. If you're wearing bright white, bright white on a on a visor is much harder to to remove um much much harder and so uh that was that was important right out of the gate i i decided to get my own flight suit and and uh you know i've i've been known to you know there's one particular aspect of my flight suit that everybody kind of has has noted on my flight suit and i'll show you here where um i've been known to put boy scout badges on my flight suit uh, yes let's see and and uh you know here's i have the farming badge to show i grew up on a farm i went to art school my art school badge that was <laughs> four years and then i have my camera badge which you know has taken me 25 years to to earn so these are badges that i actually flew uh, have sewn on my flight suit yeah th those are definitely be conversation pieces yep. for for air medical crews they're going geez what's how do you get that one yeah you know <laughs> including walking into hospitals when I would yeah. have to walk in the hospital. I've been, you know, I've had uh, trauma nurses look over and go, Oh, that's, that's cute. Right. It breaks the ice immediately. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there was one time in, in, <laughs> in, in San Antonio where I walked into a military hospital. So all the students and it's a training hospital, all the students are still kind of in uniform or in, in uh, hospital garb. And the leader goes, he's like, you got, you got boy scout badges on your flight suit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is your background but but it broke the ice and it yeah. was a great way it's a canadian thing too you know don't take things too seriously and yeah well, well talk about talk about some of the work that you've done outside of uh the united states and canada because i know you've yes uh, done a lot of international work too yes. talk about that i've uh, one of my bigger projects that i was able to secure um, early on in 2005, because I met somebody at the AMTC in 2003, of course, a representative of, of international SOS, Shirley Palmer. And she was a big fan of my photography. So she was able to work with, uh, with international SOS and their medical director, Dr. Fraser Lamond at the time. And he was able to get me secured out to Johannesburg, South Africa to fly with their fixed wing program. Wow. Yeah. We were at Lansiri Airport uh, near Johannesburg, private airport. And they, the South Africans are known for the long haul flights, long haul fixed wing, because they were, they're basically repatriating South Africans from Africa and the continent of Africa. Uh, oh, interesting. Is huge. And so many times through their insurance system, they were able to repatriate South Africans. So we took many flights North up in the deepest, darkest parts of, of Africa. And, and, you know, arriving in, uh, arriving in, I remember DRC and, and the pilots like, wow, that was close. We had a pedestrian on the runway again, flying, you know, 12, uh, let's see, 10 hours, you know, stopping for fuel in Angola and going all the way up to Accra to pick up a patient, you know, at three in the morning for 45 minutes and me carefully photographing the actions on that tarmac uh, very carefully for a few minutes for, you know, just to get those shots because they knew I wouldn't use a flash on my camera. They knew that the gate, 
the gate agents and the tarmac agents are highly sensitive to anything because, you know, these airplanes that were flying for international SOS are known as air ambulances, but they're also known as flying ATMs. <laughs> and, and so you had to be very careful arriving in some of these countries because, you know, um, it, it could be dangerous for the crews. And yeah. you know, the pilot opens up the safe in the airplane and he has a wad of cash this high. And I'm like, wow, is that, is that when your credit card doesn't, you know, to buy gas? And he goes, oh, no, we just use a credit card for that. He goes, we use this to buy back the doctor or nurse. Jeez. Instant fines, like fines like blue stripes are not allowed on aircraft in our country. You know, that's $500. That's yeah. what they- yeah, so that's what you mean by ATM. Yeah. So um, on these international flights. Yeah. And you, you were doing you'd done work, what, in the Czech Republic? Yes. Too? Yeah. yeah. Republic with Alpha Helicopter at the time flying with uh, a Czech Air Medical Service. That was uh, Pavel Mueller's program at the time. And amazing, oh, yes. amazing experiences there uh, flying into, you know, landing on, on city streets before uh, LZ was was secured, yet people within that city street knew what was going on. You know, and Pavel one time asked me to get out of the aircraft, go to the back and stop traffic from coming down the street at the at the tail rotor end. I'm standing there like a traffic cop, you know, standing there, not speaking English, but they knew what was going on. I've also uh, flown in Australia with CareFlight, Ian Batham's original program. Yes. And both in Sydney with the Hurt helicopter, um, uh, the helicopter emergency rapid response team, which basically was a, is a BK and now a 145 that's generally, it'll transport patients, but generally it's transporting delivery of a, a trauma doctor to a scene within an urban environment. And then that doctor will travel by ground through Sydney most times back to the, back to the hospital. Um, but also flying in, da- in Darwin out of fixed ring programs and rotary there where Darwin is at, at the end of the earth and, <laughs> And they have a fleet, they had a fleet of five King Airs going constantly, picking up patients and going out the outback in, an, in a King Air. Wow. I've been to some really, really remote spots. Yeah. Wow. And You've got the, such an amazing experience, you know, all over the world. I, I think I wanted to move on to uh, safety because you had told me that, um, you know, because you are a third rider, you can, you know, look at things from a different perspective. And that's probably why the pilots, because they're ultimately always responsible for the safety of the aircraft that they need to to trust you. But you had said that um, you had actually written some rider insights to the commission on the accreditation of medical transport systems or CAMES uh, back in 2019. So what is it, what were you seeing as far as safety? What did you learn? I learned a lot, and that was based on my experience was, was beginning with stars, and very very safety conscious pilots, um, being a two pilot operation, and the way a pilot would exit the aircraft when it's running, um, they were more hypersensitive, obviously, to actions around the aircraft, and were definitely teaching me safety aspects and telling me stories about other starvers messing up and walking towards the tail rotor and being tackled, right. I didn't ever want to be tackled. Yeah. <laughs> my pilots. And, and those guys became friends and they were safety advocates. When I entered the United States, 
the same thing. I was able to now connect with pilots because of my STARS teachings and my STARS insights um, that, that these pilots uh, understood me and I understood them and what they were dealing with. And so it takes three to say go, one to say no. Well, now that I, you know, I'm getting longer in the tooth with this, and the, you know, now there's four on the aircraft as a third rider, I would say no if, if I saw something. And I've seen different things. And I've, I, I don't know if I had close calls. I probably did. But as per the experiences that we, we explain within safety context, you may have not even known what sort of dangers you were in. And so as a civilian on the aircraft, not having to worry about medical treatment going on beside me, maybe because I can't photograph because now we're in a patient care environment, I'd be looking out the window more and a more hypersensitive and farm kid listening and feeling my machine. You can feel it yes. in your, right? when you're sitting, sitting on the seat. And that farm experience also translates to a pilot saying him listening to his machine that he can feel through the stick. So I've never been in a situation, but I've, I've, I think we've only had one diverted, uh, call way back in 2002 um one lz that i thought was a little tight for my liking basically now my liking now yeah that was too tight right experiences though in europe i'm like i guess there's new new ideas about what a tight lz is compared to the united states let me tell you right you know i've landed on a four-lane highway in the czech republic with the two lanes zooming past this our turning rotors are maybe within eight feet Wow. And it was still, the police hadn't totally secured the LZ and people were driving on the shoulder to go around us because we're in the left-hand lane on a four lane road. And I'm like, wow. Right. But it's also, the, there's a trust factor that in the Czech Republic, people know you don't mess with the air ambulance. Right. Now they've been, may have been driving on the shoulder, but they were aware that they had to drive on the shoulder because of the, because of the rotors, um, you know, different experiences on that. And also an important one, fatigue, right? And and even that applies to an air medical photographer. You shouldn't have an air sleepy air medical photographer doing too many shifts. And and you're not contributing if you're kind of nodding off and not paying attention. You it's go time the whole time because everybody's counting on each other. And I'm just happen to be that fourth set of eyes, able to look backwards because of the way I'm sitting in a ship and feeling. And I think you're just contributing to the safety. So that, that's really important to me um, on that. And yes, I finally applied some of those experiences and wrote them down and forwarded them to Eileen Fraser, a plug to you and your, your interview with her previous yes, to me. Yes, yes. Everybody should watch that. So I'm giving you a little bit of an ad right now. <laughs> Thank um, you. You bet. Eileen took those, presented them to, to the board, and they have made the 12th edition under... Uh, version, I have the numbers here, under version 02372V. Uh, My third rider insights have now been adopted into the 12th edition that is currently under review by Kames. I'm pretty damn proud of that, that, that uh, I was able to mention my insights as a third rider, civilian, but also, you know, insights that don't get too cocky. You've been on, you know, I've been with 50 programs and I've done hundreds of missions even the, the most experienced should still listen to the, the pilot briefing. The ex most experienced should re-review where the, the fire extinguisher is. Um, 
that safety is important to me. And we'll probably speak about that as how I translated that to an artistic project. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's checklists. It's um, going through everything and you watch good crews and they, that's what they do. You know, yeah. it's uh, they are, are, are trained. I mean, I have, I, I'm a checklist crazed person. I have checklists for everything. Um, now my big one is bicycling, you know, because inevitably I'll get outside or something. I where's my helmet or where's my water bottle. And so now I go through a, a checklist. Yes. So um, you also uh, did some work uh, for the Dubai Air Medical and Rescue Show. Um, yes. What, uh, uh, I guess you were hired uh, to be a freelance uh, photographer. Uh, what was it like working in the UAE? And what, what's that experience like? And who, who, who all went to, to that uh, show too? Where, where did programs come from? I was introduced to the Dubai Heli Show in 2006. Um, now, the Dubai Heli Show is a very small boutique-like show that is based in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Dubai is a future city. And if you yeah. ever have a chance to visit Dubai, it will blow your mind. Um, they are hosting the expo uh, this year coming up. And, and it's they built a, a small city to host that. The attitude, it's a, it's a Middle Eastern country. But it's a very westernized, amazing country um, that has, you know, Muslim values, but Western insights um, led by Sheikh Mohammed. Uh, it, 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 my first visit, I was blown away because it's also a very international city. All countries are invited to Dubai. And if you've been following news two years ago, even Israel was invited to be set up their new embassy in Dubai and be part of the World Expo. This is how hmm. United Arab Emirates thinks. It's one of the Gulf countries. It's the most progressive. And, and you know, you get the occasional uh, snarky news story trying to uncover something bad about Dubai, but that's, that's a rare effort. I have been so welcome to Dubai as a Canadian. And that also all began in 2006 by getting invited to the Dubai Air Medical Show to exhibit because I, I sent an email to a to who somebody who has now become a dear friend, Julia Cuthbert. She replied 10 minutes later saying, well, why don't you come to the show? And, and I said, okay. And I replied back, um, you know, and I, I said, I'm a photographer and I could maybe take a few shots at your event for you. She replies back 10 minutes later again, we're going to grant you a booth. I've just secured permission with Mr. Abdullah. I'm like, wow. So two weeks later, I'm going to Dubai with a bunch of rolled up photos. I go to Ikea because they have Ikea in Dubai, of course, <laughs> get stuff in frames. I set up a booth. They give, they grant me a corner booth. And that's where history began with me in Dubai in 2006. Um, the Abuhul family who run this small boutique show and the Abuhul family is a very, very open, progressive, well-traveled family, ed American educated, have multiple different exhibitions that they have. And the Heli show was one of them. And so Mr. Abdullah and his son Ahmed and his daughter Maysoon have opened, welcomed me continuously back to Dubai to participate in their other shows. The Heli show obviously is small. It's not HAI, but we've invited HAI to there and they have, have shown up. Um, I have great photos of, of uh, the late um, uh, Matt Sicaro. Yes. Uh, in, in, uh, in Dubai. Uh, great times. 
the show itself, I would constantly have a booth. I would be the official photographer for the show. Uh, we'd have all types of aircraft come in, including Russian, because Russian helicopters were invited to the show. I don't believe Russian helicopters are at HAI, right? But they're at the Dubai Heli Show. And of course, meeting unique Russian people with different perspectives. And also a few military people too, because uh, the Abu family would make a call and we'd get three military aircraft to show up for three days. And I would, I was even allowed to photograph them too. And, wow. and uh, I have some, you know, some unique, unique photos from that, you know, and I could, let me just grab you one, like, you know, one of my well-known um, ones would be, let's see, that's there. One of my, uh, I'm just looking here, just to. Uh, so was your work while you're looking, was your work for the show? I mean, were you, would you provide photos to the show that they could use in future years then? And Yes. And, and that was, that was the key to, uh, to uh, do that because it was like the host program photography project. They needed an archive of their imagery and their shows so they could ab advertise it for them. Right. Right. And, and that was their challenge. And so I came up with this solution born out of the aims, born out of aims and the host program photography project. And there I was, I was, uh, I was creating a, an archive for, for these guys. We'll have to dig that up or maybe we can insert that later, but some of my Dubai show photos have gone on to illustrate the show very successfully throughout the Middle East. And uh, that also included invites to the media and marketing show and the Abu Hul family Domus communications also has uh, different exhibitions that they put on. Abdullah, great guy, right? Well-traveled Western, Western, Western uh, educated friend, great friend. And I'm a friend of this local family um, is always fascinated with travel. I've met him in the United States and we've traveled a little, a little bit together. I met him in, uh, I met him in, in uh, Czech Republic and we traveled together. I was so surprised one day he's in Prague and we were all there for air med. And he goes, well, I'd like to take a, could you walk with me? I'd like to go see the Jewish cemetery. It's a famous place. I'm like, but you're an Arab guy. He says, I want to, I read about it. I want to see it. Yeah. This is my friend, Abdullah. Um, and, and a great, great guy. Yeah. So um, you also are the, the founder and official photographer for the Memorial Lights Project that is done at the Air Medical Transport Conference, I think since, was it 2013? Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to thank you publicly for doing this. It's important to recognize those uh, crew members that were lost in the air medical critical care transport field. Um, tell us about the project, why, how you started it. And um, do you have a committee that assists you with this and um, what's being planned uh, for Fort Worth? Memorial Lights. Well, yes. Um, that all began, you know, understanding I was watching terrible tragedies and crashes in, in you know, early 2000s. And, and that was something, especially coming from the STARS program. Not that they were saying they were safer, but they just had, had different things that they were doing. And, you know, they, they explained to me, they've had close calls too, right? Uh, that all resulted, as you remember, the 2009 hearings by the NTSB. Right. Right. And that was chaired by uh, Robert Sumwell, um, who later became the chair of the NTSB. 
that was my experience with DC. Heading to DC, you know, to visit the Ames office or the spring conference um, was a unique experience for this kid, farm kid from Saskatchewan. We'd all heard about these, these very important uh, hearings, NTSB hearings or Senate hearings, et cetera, et cetera, right? Well, the 2009 hearing was a big deal for Ames, right? And they had to give presentations. I believe Sandy, uh, Sandy Kincaid Hutton was, was the president at the time and she had to, she had to speak on behalf. You were there, Ed. Um, many other familiar faces from the air medical community were there and, and spoke. And Chairman Sumwalt at the time was a real influence on me. He granted me permission to shoot on behalf of Ames. He knew I wasn't a photojournalist and I got some great shots of action shots happening. He, he has actually become a bit of a friend, right? So that was a safety aspect. I knew he was compiling a, you know, 100-page report, you know, that, that was going to say something. And I thought, what could I say as an artist, as a message of safety? And I thought about it for several years after the 2009 hearings. And so I came up with the idea after being at Burning Man and the influence of Burning Man in 2006, noting what an artistic installation could do of multiple things to give you a, a sense of uh, perspective of what, you know, at Burning Man, they had presented 3,000 little wooden crosses to illustrate the Iraq war line of duty deaths, right? And you're like, you see this line of crosses going for a quarter mile. And you're like, wow. So in 2013, I made a purchase of uh, 400 little tea lights, little electronic tea lights. And on the eve of the Air Medical Memorial, that was in Littleton, Colorado. That is the organization that Steve Sweeney and his brother have, have yes. organized. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I asked Steve for permission for the night before to try a test of setting out these lights, the memorial lights. And, and uh, he says, go for it. Right. So there was three of us there that night, Alex Farnsworth, Temple Fletcher and myself. And we set out these 400 T lights on the landing zone where the, of the air medical memorial that helicopters would be landing the next the next morning for the sunrise service, a great service, right? We put out the lights and we were astounded. And it just gave us a sense of perspective. Each light has a name of a crew member written on it. They're all in a box, they're all mixed up. And what we do is we now set them out and have volunteers. I just get volunteers for the, at the Air Medical Memorial or prior to the AMTC, set them on a table and people start taking out, turning them on in the back and reading the names. And inevitably, any volunteers will come across their friends' names. It's just our, our sensitivity to looking at names. Volunteers who may have lost crew members, friends, they will find that light every time. Yeah. Set out, and we set the lights out in different environments. On the LZ of the uh, Air Medical Memorial, we've set them out on patios at the AMTC. We've set them out in public parks since 2013 at the AMTC. Um, and that has has uh, has transformed. It was that influence of Sumwalt and his report. I thought I need to express it safety through an artistic installation, and that is the Memorial Lights project. Now, over the years, I think the lights and different people like people, members of the Survivors Network, like Krista Hagen, yes, right, Megan Hamilton, Jonathan Godfrey, and other key people, also encouraged me to express sort of that loss because I had also gone through a very bad loss of a relationship in 2010 and this was one way to sort of give back to get through the, my own personal struggle 
and, and give back to the air medical community in a unique way that I would, you know, I'd be the corporate sponsor because not that it's, it's an untouchable subject, but it's sensitive. And I felt as the Canadian guy, I probably could approach this more in a sensitive way. The lights do not have what the positions were. We're not naming flight crew, what their position was. We're not saying who the pilot was. We're not going down that, that path. We're just recognizing these losses. And, and as a result, you know, on the eve of the Air Medical Memorial, it is now a tradition um, to set out the lights. And it's a soft introduction to many of the families who attend the, uh, the Air Medical Memorial and, and lead them into that. It's, it's, uh, I'm proud of, of the project. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I've stayed in touch with Chairman Sumwall to let him know of that. And there's been a couple articles about it. And he's like, wow. You know, and that's also a driving factor. When you're friends with somebody at the NTSB, you don't want to ever be in an accident because I know who would want to lead the lead the investigation. He'd go, I'd take that one. I know this guy, right? So that also keeps me uh, on the straight and narrow with safety. I do not want to be, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Well, it's uh, just a great way to, to recognize uh, people I know have gone at AMTC. Usually, um, you also have some music usually. Too, yes. right? And uh, it's a big shout out to Greg Hildebrand, right? Um, yep. His song, Never Forget, was written in recognition of recognizing line of duty deaths within his community of the air medical community. And that song has been adopted by the uh, air medical memorial. There was also an artist by the name of Stephen Mark, who was a concert pianist who was also an EMS pilot years ago. And he wrote an album, Hearts of Heroes, that was in recognition of oh. lost air medical people. And also, when we have set up the lights in Virginia Beach, 2013, Craig Yale, Tom, uh, Tom Judge, and, and Greg Hildebrand all played together at, on the beach. And then another memorial, uh, memorable evening at the Air Medical Memorial. I was just mad being a bass player that I didn't get invited, but, you know, <laughs> you <laughs> no, just, just, just kidding. But well, um... to Fort Worth, and you asked about that. Ames has secured uh, a public permit for the lower water uh, garden. So at the water fountain park at Fort Worth, Fort Worth water gardens, water fountain gardens. They have secured a permit for October 30th at 6 PM for me to put the lights out in the lower pool. Um, and so we're going to take it up a notch. Um, we're not going to land an aircraft there, but we're going to have names projected. I'm going to transform the pool. I've already scouted the area. I'm working with the gardener of the park and city officials to make sure that we've got a unique setting. So the same night that the tailgate party is on for the opening of the MTC, which opens a day earlier, everybody, don't forget that. Um, there was also a quiet event at six o'clock that opens up at twilight. And yes, I could use a few volunteers. We're going to set lights out on the table. Again, it's impromptu and we'll have the lights set out and we are going to also try to project names onto the pool and make it a recognition, more of a public event now, because the public is also invited um, to see this, this, this event. They're just tea lights, but, and they're silent, but they speak volumes. Yeah. Well, that's, that's wonderful. Thanks again, Mark, for doing that. You bet. So uh, I, you just, uh, in, in planning for this podcast, we had to do some stuff about a week ago because you went out to a, uh, an event that you can't say the name, but I know that it, uh, you've been involved with Burning Man in, in, in Nevada. Uh, 
but it was canceled last year. It was canceled this year. But yes. but talk about how you got involved with Burning Man and what that's all about, and and then what happened this year. Oh goodness, the Burning Man. <laughs> um, born out, born from on the beaches in San Francisco. Uh, of course, a very strong arts community. A group of people led by a gentleman by the name of Larry Harvey began the uh, began a, just a personal project of of just at the end of summer burning of an effigy of the man because Larry had been screwed around by, like he said, the saying, you've been screwed around by the man, right? And so burning this effigy is small, you know, it was, I don't know, I guess the very first one might have only been eight feet high. They purchased burn him on a campfire, right? And the story has different embellishments over the years. But this event at Baker Beach in California um, then suddenly grew. And by the third year, it was so big that they had to move it because the city officials in Baker Beach, like this is too big, this is too big of a gathering. So eventually the gathering finally ended up in the Black Rock Desert um, in Northern Nevada, 100 miles north of Reno, Nevada, near the town of Gerlach, if you're, uh, if you're Googling that, Gerlach, Nevada. And this event is held on a dry lake bed where the lake dries up by, by July. And it's, it's about 50 square miles of flat lake bed. And, the Burning Man project has turned itself from a gathering of ours who would go out there, make, create temporary art, and then burn it down. So then only the attendees to the event could see this art. That was the beginnings of it. And by 1997 and 1998, it became more formalized with ticket sales, more organized situation, bigger art. It began to grow so big that, you know, by... By the time I got there in 2006, the attendees were 30,000 people. And it wow. creates Black Rock City. And if you Google that, you'll find out that that city, as in 2019, grew to 80,000 people. The event itself is surveyed on a, on a circle. So that's how you get your addresses, right? With, uh, you know, it's based on a clock and then streets, outlying streets are alphabetical. So you know, if I give you an address of I'm at 845 and D, D Street, you can probably figure that out with, with the signs that are around on the street. So very organized. They have their own Black Rock Rangers, which is like their police force. They have their own arts and foundation community, which sponsors this art and facilitates art, art to be built out there. They have their own public works department that supplies cranes, forklifts, diggers, um, some electrical advice, generators help these art, all to help these artists create gi big, gigantic art. Some of the art now is built in steel, so it's not burnt. It's actually built out there, and then it's, it's often offered to different cities to purchase or display. Huge art, art that you need gigantic cranes. Like, they have big 20-ton cranes out there that lifting stuff to build this art. By 2015, the art, the man, that the, the effigy of the man that they built was 105 feet tall. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, amazing thing. So I got involved in 2006, ironically, of course, dragged in or in a willing way through Care Flight here in Reno, Nevada. They were supplying uh, medical uh, assistance to the Burning Man project. Oh, and so that's the connection. That's the connection. In 2003, when I met, again, here we go back through the CPR committee's uh, host program photography project. 2003 was in Reno. 
right? And, and so I went out and photographed Care Flight as one of the host programs, met some unique people, including Temple Fletcher, which circles back to the Memorial Lights. Um, they set up the tent out there. They, by 2006, I was finally able to make it. And I was hooked after the second day. And it's desert camping. It's extremely harsh. The wind can blow like, like, like hell out there. And it, you can have whiteout conditions. And, and it, there is nothing like it. And so by 2012, um, I decided to join the, the documentary crew. So I was taking photos out there already. But then I, I joined the documentary crew. And by 2014, I was part of that crew. One way to secure a ticket because the event itself now sells out 60,000 tickets in about 40 minutes. Whoa. It's impossible to get a ticket. And so my way of getting a ticket was volunteering my professional services and helping them create an archive, a specific archive, just like the host program photography project. And so with that, that responsibility comes some privileges, which they give you a name badge, which means absolutely nothing, but it gives you that sense of responsibility that you're documenting art that will disappear. And, and I have amazing different photos from that. And, and uh, perhaps we could direct people to my, my website as a way to, to see. Sure. Yeah, I'll have um, that in the show notes. Yeah. Wow. And, and those images and that experience has been amazing. Amazing. Now you asked about last year and this year. Well, last year was canceled and a few people went out desert camping this year, about 15,000 people went out there desert camping. Some challenges, of course, but they were the majority of the people, 90% were all what we call burners, previous attendees. So they knew the 10 principles of, you know, of Burning Man, which included, you know, their other rules of conduct. Moop, don't leave matter out of place. Don't, you can't just throw your trash out. You have to plan when you go out that there's no services, right? Um, what you take in is what you take out. There were no part of potties, nothing. And so they developed a small city this year. Again, very casually based. Unfortunately, it was in a circle, but there were no street signs. So everybody got lost because <laughs> you could say I'm at 845 and D, but where was that? You know, nobody could figure out. You were using landmarks. One, one camp put up a huge crane and we're using that 100 foot crane as a, as, a, as a waypoint to get around the city, right? An amazing experience again. The weather did not blow. There was no winds. Um, it was hot, but it wasn't, there was no challenges. So I don't know what would happen if it rained out there because it can rain and the playa itself becomes glue and you can't move. Um, it didn't win. There was no wind. So there was no trash blown about. There was very little trash, very, very responsible burners. Yeah. There were some idiots out there that played their music too loud as usual. Um, but there were other camps who had set up their sound camps again. And these are sound camps are like raves and they'll, they'll put, uh, make an art car out of a city bus and then make it triple decker size with big speakers and a DJ at the top. He's like, you know, spinning and listening and you'll get a thousand people dancing in front all night. Wow. That's part of it. There was no art this year. Other years there's art, um, you know, gigantic fires that are burnt over the course of the week. There was none of that. There was, though, for the Burning Man to represent Burning Man, was a drone display. They had organized drones and they made, you know, it was in flight. And then they made a Burning Man shape about a thousand feet high with drones. Interesting. Spun around and everybody's like, wow. So 
uh, yeah, the, some called it the non-burn, some called it the renegade burn, some called it burn 2021. If you Google that, you'll see there's a lot of people that are posting photos and I will post mine soon. Um, yeah. Interesting experiences out there. It's, and it, it's influenced me and my art and my photography still. Yeah, I, I didn't know much about it until, you know, we talked about it a little bit. And then from what you're saying right now, it's. Um... Well, you need again, you need your farming skills, because, of course, par for the course, my old RV uh, had a had an engine issue again. So there I was out on the playa trying to work circumvent an electric fuel pump on my old 1978 Dodge RV. And I did it, you know, farm farm experience. I didn't get a sunburn because I was working underneath working underneath trying to fix the gas pump and i i got it going again and i was able to get my old rv off the playa and that's i changed the fuel pump out there in 2014 wow so did you buy that specifically for burning man yeah they have yeah. the rv yeah you don't want to take a new rv out to that dusty <laughs> you'll just yeah. destroy it so i have an old 1978 tioga dodge that uh probably gets about i think ed you know we were speaking earlier that it might get five miles again. I think it actually gets eight because I've <laughs> and the, the gas gauge is kind of works and it didn't use as much gas this time. So I believe I'm getting eight miles a gallon <laughs> at, at 55 miles an hour. So um, it only has driven about 300 miles a year up and back to Burning Man and then to the DMV to get a smog test. But yeah, you don't want to take something new out there. I store it here in, in Reno and yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, Another uh, interesting project that, uh, you know, I was aware of, and I, I guess uh, uh, in full disclosure, I was one of the fans of this project and uh, I don't want any, you know, uh, me too type stuff happening, but uh, you uh, uh, did work for the Calgary Stampeders cheerleaders, which yeah. are of the Canadian football league and they're called the outriders. Yes. How did you get involved uh, in this project, um, and you did a calendar each year, I think, and yes. that's how I knew about it because you used to pass them around. Um, yeah. So I probably still have a couple of those around somewhere. Well, yeah, I can show you probably a copy you have. Yeah. Uh, the Outriders. Well, keep in mind, when I was shooting air medical transport in the U.S., I still was returning to Canada in, in, you know, the, in the early 2000s, right? And so I still had to maintain a, uh, an anchorage there in, in Calgary. And one of the projects I had got involved in was shooting for the Calgary Stampeders Football Club and their cheer dance team called the Outriders. And so I just ran with that project. And it was a nice aside because that's part of my personality of, you know, work hard on one project, focus, 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 and then finish that off and move on to the next. I can't multitask. And maybe that's typical of a male, but I need to focus on one thing, whether it's, you know, an air medical project, um, the memorial lights, a fuel pump on the playa, <laughs> and a cheerleader calendar, and and I would I wanted to make it the best ever um, for that football team, and so yeah, by 2002 I shot for their their calendar and it went over really well, and by 2003 I was shooting the calendar full time for for uh, 13 more seasons of the, wow. the Target Stampede Outriders great to work with young energetic women who are focused on their on their on their dance and they're also you know they're screened right you know there's there's a screening process and they select highly motivated 
young women. And these young women now in the future are, you know, lawyers, doctors, dentists, optometrists, uh, audiologists. They're very successful women. And I saw them develop that when they were young. And, and uh, that, that counter, that counter project was, was something that I was pretty proud of. And, and uh, you know, here's an example of, of this project. And uh, Ed, you may have this on your wall. Yeah, I probably have it somewhere, yeah. 2007. So, you know, that, that project uh, involved, you know, a little bit of being a farm kid, you know, being, being respectful of young women. Um, uh, my mother always was help, happy that I was hanging out, you know, with these young women. Maybe one of them someday might take a shining to me. I kept it professional, to be totally honest. You had to keep that distance, um, you know. Uh, you know, darn right, but but that's how I how I uh, I chose to approach it. In the later years, I brought on my best buddy Waldy Martins, who was a photographer as well that I went to school with, right? right. And Waldy, extremely talented professional photographer with portraiture and photographing women. Um, just as a sidebar, yeah, Waldy did shoot a little bit for special editions Playboy, and and. Yeah, that that influence rubbed off on me and Waldy's professionalism to that project. And also, I should know, and he, he understates it, but I believe Waldy assisted that magazine with with the transition to digital because they actually were having issues. You know, the retouchers at that time were retouching on film. And now they're capturing digitally and to get skin tones correct and digital was difficult in those early years. And Waldy worked behind the scenes a little bit to assist that organization to get their digital transition going. And they, he would help them with different testing. And I'm kind of proud to brag about my buddy helped with the digital transition with Playboy in yeah. behind the scenes. Interesting. So, that, and you've kept uh, touch with some of the cheerleaders over the years too, haven't yes. you? Yes, I have. Yeah. And yeah. Said, you know, now some are audiologists, lawyers, um, working on being physicians. And and I also they also some migrated to a different uh, a different um, uh, cheer team the the drill crew which were part of the lacrosse league cheer team right they oh. friends with them and even up until 2019 pre COVID um, the alumni got together for the Calgary Grey Cup because I used to travel with this team too that was the other coveted position I had I was the only male that traveled with a complete team of cheerleaders to the Grey Cup our Grey Cup is your Super Bowl, right? right. And, and so they turn it into a Canada-wide festival. So all teams, all cheer teams are invited and they make it a Canada festival, right? And so all cheer teams perform at the Grey Cup. And, you know, I escorted the my cheer team 10 times to the Grey Cup and, and uh, great stories and maybe a little bit of chaperoning that was involved, but mostly documenting <laughs> the team. And I've got, you know, hundreds of it, images that'll show up maybe in a book someday to fast forward to 2019 hanging out with the alumni they got together and did a new dance routine and it was like an old high school reunion and and seeing all those very familiar friendly faces and it was great to see them yeah in interesting project so let's let's keep moving here you um have received several awards uh over the years including most recently the air medical crew in full uh, personal protective PPE for COVID-19, yes. uh, a photo, uh, that was the 
2021 grand prize winner of the Helicopter Association International Photo Contest, I think, on that yeah. one. And you also were second place in the 2020 Vertical Magazine Photo Contest with a photo called ARHT Sunset Setup of two Leonardo 139s. Yeah. Um, and you've also had several association awards that were recognized uh, um, uh, as one of Calgary's top 40 under 40. Yes. Uh, and then, uh, so congratulations on all those, but tell us a little bit more about them. Thank you. Well, uh, I don't brag enough, perhaps, you know, um, that's a tangent on social media. I may be able to speak to that later about, you know, I'm not a selfie kind of guy, but my work, um, yeah, I've entered a few contests and I've, I've, you know, the latest win was, was this image, um, which is the, uh, the image for Helicopter Association International Rotor Photo Contest. Yeah. This one did not feature an aircraft, but rather featured our crews in action. This was a setup shot in Oceanside, California, Mercy Air Crew, uh, rehearsing their brand new uh, PPE protocols as per Air Methods Directive that afternoon in April 2020. Uh, this is a crew that I got them to cooperate um, and to set up the shot. And that's even the, our mock patient is the medical director, Dr. Sloan, um, who was guiding that. These are strange days back in, in early COVID March. Yes. Yes. And, and I knew I needed to get a shot of something going on. I couldn't shoot a real patient, but Dr. Sloan convinced this flight crew to work with me to create this image and, and, and rep, be representative of what was happening. And, and so we pulled this, this image off. Um, and I submitted to, to Ames as well as I submitted to the Helicopter Association International Water Contest. I got, I got grand prize. And it was a big honor from HAI for that. And, and uh, you know, many thanks to, to Gina and, and to uh, Dan um, at HAI for recognizing this, an image without a helicopter. Um, I've always been kind of a you know, square peg trying to go through a round hole. And no helicopter image here. You noted a, a win from uh, previous where, you know, a contest sponsored by Bell. And I still got second place with my Augusta photograph. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. You know, and, and then you also noted uh, the fact that, you know, I did get some recognition from Ames. I've received two president's awards from the Association Air Medical Services, both from, from uh, President Sandy Kincaid Hutton, as well as then uh, later on in 2016 from Dave Evans. Uh, yes. Chair. And those are pretty proud moments. Uh, the six, 2016 one was a huge surprise. And that was a big deal. One of the, one of the other really proud moments was you know the uh, was the top forty under forty recognition by by Calgary Magazine and you know this was of course a long time ago in a galaxy far far away but <laughs> um, you know when I was shooting for stars you can see my my little badges on my right arm and my Ames badge on the front um, and a BK one seventeen in the back yeah this was pretty good recognition for uh, forty people in within Calgary. Of course, I, I was on the same list now as the mayor of Calgary. So, but, you know, I'm, I got the, I got the two page spread. He only got a little, little <laughs> and then she only got a small, small. That, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, I, I think that that COVID picture, I think just really captures a moment in time uh, oh, yeah. with what crews have been going through. And like each of these 
podcast, and I'm going to ask you that about COVID too, but it's just, you know, how it's impacted um, transport, you know, and early on, it seems like no one knew, you know, people weren't being transferred. Then uh, there's been numerous transports of smaller hospitals not being able to take care of them and, and crews having to transport uh, these patients. So, yes, yes. And I'm, you know, I was just in Arizona with uh, guarding air um, and, and yeah, there, there's a lot of strains on, on the air medical system. I see it as a civilian. I also see it as, as a civilian when we entered the hospitals that guarding air serves and there's some tired looking medical professionals and, and son of a gun, you know, I'm not sure what's going to, what's going to happen with that. Um, I'm seeing it from a civilian perspective. The whole system is under a lot of stress and we're a year and a half into it already, if not more. Yeah. And this, this Delta variant has really thrown yeah. a loop, I think at everybody and uh, how much more virulent it is. And now you're seeing a lot of kids. Yes. Uh, there's article out of Idaho that they're, you know, having to cut back on other services because they have so many COVID patients. So it's, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I lost three American friends to COVID. Yeah. Uh, one was a documentary photographer from the Burning Man doc team. Uh, the second was one was a well-known restaurateur here in Reno, uh, Tony, uh, Tony Casales and uh, Bobby, Bobby Pin, the documentary photographer and Tony both were featured nationally on, in their obituaries. Um, by PBS or the New York Times. And then we all know um, the unfortunate passing of Stephen Nair. Yeah. Um, good grief. Uh, sad. And, and you know, I, I really appreciated Stephen and, and his even his artistic work, you know, with Tipsy Candle Company um, that, that he was doing. Uh, that was a severe blow to... So how, how has COVID affected your work specifically? I know you had to take a break. I had to take you a can't. break. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, I was able to, I, I know my, my ins and outs around an aircraft and, and uh, PPE procedures, but just the reluctance of programs to even bring on a third rider and, and yep. the difficulty of that. Once I was there, you know, like I, I just uh, recently did a project with uh, Teddy Bear Transport uh, out of Fort Worth, who is one of our host programs for the AMTC. And yeah, definitely had to show protocols. And I, yes, I had to roll up my sleeve when I was doing a project here for CareFlight, the CareFlight 40th anniversary calendar, um, you know, coordinated uh, through uh, program director Ron, Ron Walter and other, other people like Temple Fletcher. And, you know, this, this calendar here that has just been published, the, the CareFlight calendar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had to take, you know, I had to roll up my sleeve and say, I'm going to be vaccinated for this project. And, and I, I'm not making any questions about any of that. I, this is what we do. And this is how it's going to get done. And you wear PPE or I'm limited. I, I've had to, I've had to manage through it like everyone else. And uh, is that um, affected Mark getting back and forth uh, from the United States and Canada? Because I know that Canada wasn't accepting any U.S. citizens until just recently. Yes, in, in, in some respects. Um, although, because I have the specialty work visa, when I pre-clear in Calgary, when I was entering the United States to pre-clearance Calgary, there was no issues because I have a work visa. It's even a medically based work visa. You know, and if they were going to ever ask me questions, well, I'm here to help with illustrate the cause of COVID. 
and what it's doing. And I've got a grand prize photo <laughs> to, to uh, back that argument up argument up but i've never been questioned i have limited the back and forth nature of it i used to return to canada you know every every month sometimes because you know there's convenient flights out of san diego anywhere back to calgary now those flights are limited so my travel options are limited um my travel medical hasn't been affected too much um allegedly you know you know i'm not covered for covid but because i'm vaccinated then i i would be understood by my travel medical that I, that I am, you know, I guess, you know, I, one plan was, well, if I caught COVID, maybe I need to step in front of a bus first and then <laughs> I'd be, have a traumatic injury and I'd get transported home. Um, it, it, it has affected and it's affected many of my, my cohort, you know, my cohorts in this industry. And I'm concerned that they're working damn hard and, and uh, I'm glad they were recognized, you know, through my my photography but yeah they're tough times it's 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 you know a little iffy right now and a lot of meetings uh some meetings being canceled uh you know amtc still on we're hoping for sure that you know the delta thing will have subsided but you know texas has been hit pretty hard yes uh, with the delta variant yes so back to photography a little bit um i love talking to photographers, but how have you seen things changed over the year? I'm sure digital is one of them and you touched on that um, a little bit, but uh, um, do you still shoot with film occasionally? Are you gone totally digital? And what are the advantages and disadvantages of digital? I went through the big transition, of course. I learned through chemicals and film in art school and started shooting commercially with chemicals and film. Yep photographer and then by 2005 i had to make the transition over to digital both for the fact that it was speed of of on a cheerleader counter that you're not shooting film anymore and that you've got us now you have already like an instant scan and you're able to retouch it quicker that was a push for the on the cheerleader side on the air medical side well film had still had was still advanced versus digital in the early years where some of the films were better in low light than digital was in those early 2000s and so i still shot a little bit of film um then i transitioned to digital as the camera as my second digital camera got better and each generation of camera gets better in low light and that's what i shoot a lot of in low light i don't use flash right when i'm shooting uh my air medical one because you're bringing attention to yourself two it's then a patient privacy issue where you bring the patients aware that they're being photographed i don't go there low lighting is better in digital and and uh just the fact that it's better or, you know, I can shoot more frames, more action shots, which does lead though to other issues in digital, which is the editing aspect. Yes. You're, I'm now shooting thousands of frames and, and the late, latest project I did, I shot 11,000 plus frames and I got to weed through that because now I'm shooting important action shots with multiple resources assembled. And the way I go for the action, I go for that defining moment. I'm looking for, the right expression, the right stride, and the right action of a first responder and medical people that, because again, I circle back that they make bad actors, but they are better when they're performing their jobs. You got to go to get that shot. And, and that's the same with, you know, other guys who shoot aerials, right? You know, like my uh, colleagues, like uh, um, 
Mike Greeno or Neville Dawson, they're also shooting thousands of images because as the background changes, you just, you're machine gunning it to get that definitive moment, right? I'm shooting that definitive moment and I'm trying to get it the right way and I'm not shooting video, right? I'm looking for the defining moment. So that's the challenge of digital is, is now the editing. And then the further challenge of taking a digital file and the amount of incredible retouching you can do. And that's where some of it I've passed on to my best buddy, Waldy, who is not a Photoshop expert, but rather a Photoshop doctor. And, and he can do amazing things. And many times he's just fine tuning my image. Like I didn't get the sunset I needed um, for some shots and he's able to drop that in. Um, other times it just, you know, can you add that red blinking light on the back tail rotor? Because I just couldn't quite catch it. Um, but I still do the water effect and I'm known for that in my imagery of my setup shots is laying down water and that's liquid Photoshop. So, yeah, I mean, it must be hard. Um, you know, I think that is the downside. I think even when I take pictures, you know, cause you can, you know, like you said, you had 36 photos and they each cost, cost you money, you know, yeah. uh, yes. and you know, you can just fire away. And even on yeah. the, I think the iPhone, you can set it to automatic and it takes 10 photos, but then, you know, inevitably spend all this time. Oh, wait a minute. What, what is, you know, if it's a group shot where are they blinking or that, you know, and it's like, you oh, know, God. a lot more work in, in, in editing. I mean, and, and well, it's not really editing it's finding the right photo right. of all the photos that you've taken. So. And I can find it in an air medical situation. Cause I'm looking for the rotors the right way. I know the stride. I can pretty well see it quickly. Yeah. Those group shots, that is tough. And that's where, I give my my blessings to wedding photographers. <laughs> they are definitely doing a lot more groups and they're looking for the right smile. Yeah. And, and that's very important. And that's where the defining moment that I circle back to 1984 that a photographer came to the farm, a commercial photographer came to the farm to photograph my dad. Thank goodness it wasn't a wedding photographer <laughs> because I might have gone down that route. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 Hey, group shots are tough. I don't, you know, Tammy Chapman always takes quite a few photos of, and with groups and her thing is look at me, look at me. Yeah. You know, don't look over here, over there. And then the other bad thing is, you know, when several people are taking photos and then your photo, everybody's looking this way or that way and not, not at you. So guys, um, and their challenge. all the power to wedding guys. <laughs> yeah. So what kind of uh, cameras do you use now? Canon. I'm a Canon photographer. Canon. And I generally just when I'm uh, flying on board a, a ship, I'm probably only taking two two lenses and maybe two flashes or no flashes because I'm trying to keep myself at 100 kilos. You know, um, if I was this big when I was playing hockey, I would have been a hockey player. But but um, I'm trying to keep myself at around 100 kilos or easy math for my pilot with my flight helmet, my boots, my camera weight, my lenses. Um, I just shoot a Canon wide angle and a medium, medium, uh, uh, zoom lens when I'm on, on, on site, when I'm shooting my, my setup shots, which I'm known for, you know, where I put water down, I will have all the flashes and all the camera stuff I need in one camera bag with two stands because I've traveled internationally. So when I'm shooting a, a setup in New Zealand, that's just the gear I carried with me. Um, one carry on bag and two stands in my check bag. And I'm pulling these shots off with, you know, liquid Photoshop on the ground and just lighting techniques that I'm not trying to light the whole aircraft. I'm just trying to light their logo 
or the tail um, and using some of the available light of the sky. Um, that's again, coming from my commercial background of in the 1990s of lighting things uh, with extra lights, if you got them, utilizing the available light, if you've got it and, and uh, not counting on Photoshop to solve all your problems. Yeah. You have Photoshop at that time. They had a, a process called Cytex back in the mid nineties where they'd scan the film and then they would put it on a Cytex, which was early Photoshop to retouch it and cut things out. And that was expensive. That was, you know, $250 an hour or more at that time. And so I avoided Cytex or Photoshop charges. How is the process now with um, taking like people taking slides or, you know, they still have the negatives is digitizing that. Has that improved over yes. the years now too? Software um, and, and equipment. Um, scanning itself is an art of itself of taking what was recorded on film, because you got to remember standards are set by film and Kodak and Ilford and Fuji years ago to make sure that on their film, whether it was Kodachrome, Ektachrome, Fujichrome, that blue sweaters were blue, right? Or skin tones were skin tones. Yes. And they went through many, many hiccups trying to get their colors correct. And there were certain standards based on light levels and chemicals to make blue sweaters blue and skin tone skin tone. The same hiccups happened with digital, as I explained that Waldy was trying to assist a magazine with skin tones, right? So um, there, there is there was a lot of work to get your colors right and, and, and things coordinated with digital, just as standards were set with film standards and color profiles had to be set by, by uh, the digital industry. So I'm, I'm trying to, I usually, you know, sometimes I'm capturing on sRGB, but most times I'm delivering files on S Adobe RGB. So if those watching your podcast will know what I mean, because Adobe RGB is now kind of set standard for artists. And when it's Adobe RGB and it goes to a printer and their, their software has to break it down to CMYK, the inks, there's certain particular standards. So blue sweaters will stay, remain blue. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So um, I know uh, I always uh, tell people, cause I like taking picture with, with my uh, iPhone. My, my latest thing is there's a, group on Facebook in Minnesota calls Minnesota through the lens. And I was a little bit shy about getting involved with that, you know, cause there's good professional photographers, but I, I take, um, I'm known for taking pictures from bicycle rides. I just see interesting things. I mean, yeah. whether it's churches or houses or just uh, scenery. Um, and I've really liked, really like that. Some people say, well, that's not really photography, but I say, well, I have a friend who's a professional photographer that actually got an award taking a picture with an iPhone. So tell us about. Well, don't, don't know the iPhone yet, especially the, the latest generations. I currently, yeah, I know. Right. And I guess later this month, Apple's introducing a new one. Yep. I don't think it could be the 13 because that's a, not a lucky number. They're, so they're, they're supposed to be calling it that. The 13. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's what I've heard. So that's going to be interesting. Right. So uh, I started shooting on the iPhone uh, on an iPhone four. And, and um, I was amazed by the latitude and the things you could do with it, not in post-production, but rather just during capture, if you set the phone, right. Yeah. And that phone was in everybody's hands. 
and and I started uh, by 2012 with my iPhone 4. I was late to the, obviously I, I should have been earlier to that party, but I didn't have an iPhone till 2011, I guess, right? And and uh, maybe I'm an early adopter, maybe I'm a late adopter, but I started shooting with that when I was starting to hang out in California in Del Mar and Solana Beach. And I started shooting uh, animals at the beach, um, at Dog Beach with my iPhone 4. And so this was one of the very first photos I got with my iPhone 4 at Dog Beach. Wow. Right? And, and uh, that, that led to then getting stuff like this. And this is one of the images I got recognition in Dubai for, which, which they said, you shot that on iPhone 4. And I said, well, the light was there. The low tide was there. The people were silhouette. And the iPhone 4 didn't have a lot of detail in the shadow. And so I got onto this silhouette kind of, kind of look at Dog Beach at sunset with my iPhone 4. This another example, the iPhone 4. Um, no detail in the shadows and just trying to get the right moments with, with the uh, low tide. Yeah. And, and action wow. shots. The iPhone 4 would set itself to, to be rapid. And so I, this shot, and I've printed this, uh, I printed this 40 inches wide, right? That's how I would remember. iPhone 4 could go 40 inches wide. I have a printer in Las Vegas that knows my files. And this is an iPhone 4 capture. And so is this. So uh, the iPhone 4 itself, very powerful tool. And I graduated up to six, then an eight, and now I'm on the 11. And I am shooting unique stuff. And like when I was at Burning Man or the non-Burning Man, I was shooting just with my iPhone. I didn't even pull out my pro camera. It's durable. It can handle the dust. Yeah. Put it in an otter box and it'll never break. And, and that tool is used professionally. I have shot with my iPhone 4 at the AMTC. And on commercial jobs now. Um, really? Wow. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so there is hope, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I had, I had an old single lens reflex uh, camera that I uh, used uh, when I went to uh, China as part of grad school, this is 1979. And I was one of the official photographers mainly because I could get free film to, to do it, but I had had a lot of fun with it. But uh, now, you know, with the iPhones and stuff, you just you have it with you all the time, you know. Yeah. And so you can, you know, like, I take my phone bicycling, you know, because I want to be in communication or if I need to call someone. But if I see something really interesting and I bike it all, you know, sunrise, sunset, and other times, you can just get some interesting photos. And the things that you see are uh, pretty amazing. So that. I, I've had fun with that Minnesota through the lens. It's been yeah. um, some of the photography is just incredible uh, that people put on there. Um, I know being a professional photographer, um, uh, you pre-release in low resolution and, um, and then because you're professional, you want to provide the, the high res to the people that are paying for them. Is that, how that works or that's that's basically it now there's there's different ways of approaching you know that sort of thing but low res is then easier to share low res with an watermark then if it is shared you know your name is still on it um the ubiquitous nature of, of the iphone and, and and imagery that exists um it has flooded the market you might say right 
and there's never been a time where there's been so much good photography and there's never been so much bad photography and yeah. the good photography is getting buried by the bad photography because it out it outnumbers it 20 to 1 50 to 1 sometimes right and if you include selfies well then that's 100 to 1 um i the low res is then intended for sharing and that's how you get your name out the low res also would work in the realm of social media like instagram which is a whole different tangent that i'm still learning to be honest and i'm torn about it i instagram i have an instagram uh pages three of them that you'll share with links showing my personal work my air ambulance work and my memorial lights work uh, the high res is still the traditional way where you keep the negative and if somebody wants to make a print then you coordinate with a high res file to make the print or if somebody wants to make a big display then the high res file is the marketable uh, monetized part of that the unmonetized part which other photographers have taken that route and i did not is that you know you you make it available to royalty free or you make it to available to uh, uh royalty free things like upsplash which people just post their images have an account and anybody can go there download it for free and use it for free as long as you give them photo credit the idea being that then that photographer is getting additional exposure i don't quite subscribe to that especially in a small pond like Air, the Air Malco community. If you actually go to Upsplash and ask for Air Ambulance Helicopter, you'll only get some average looking photos. I didn't want to put mine on that. And I didn't want to put any of my Air Medical on road free. The other aspect was the HIPAA compliance too, right? And so I'm illustrating to my clients that I'm being HIPAA compliant, but I'm not posting on, on royalty-free sites patient care imagery. That patient care imagery is exclusive and people are understanding that the exclusivity and the nature of how to capture that properly um, has taken me years to perfect. So uh, social media, I'm posting, I'm posting not enough. I guess I should brag more, a little bit more. You know, when something good happens, like a professional photographer, he'll only post his good photos. He's not just going to photograph his avocado toast. Right. And so perhaps I need to be posting more, perhaps I need more followers, but my followers, I probably can say that on, on Facebook that I can strike up a conversation with each of them. Like there's very few spammers on my list because I've only friended friends. Yeah. And, and in the end, those air medical uh, marketing and decision makers that want air medical projects are not on social media. I've met them at the AMTC. I've met them at post-program photography one-on-one -on -one human human touch um when I, I i don't put out broadcast emails i do individual emails like i'm writing a letter to somebody i'm not making a form letter and sending it off i just no. it's too impersonal in my opinion yeah no that's understandable so um let's switch gears a little bit you served on the medevac foundation uh international board and uh i believe that 2003 to 2007 and then also worked on the Survivors Network calendar in 2013. Yes. What did, what did you learn from working with these groups? Well, working with these groups is the fact that I met some very influential people within the air medical community, you, yourself included, Ed. Um, and I was also at the board level. You know, some of those board meetings, as you know, went on and on, right? They were long affairs over the weekend, but they were unique affairs you know, me being possibly one of the younger guys at the table, I was all ears to understand 
how this all kind of worked within an American system as a Canadian and watching other Canadians on the American system, such as Dr. Greg Powell or, or Linda Powell, um, uh, Dave Evans, Mike LaMacchia, uh, yep. these Canadians were providing insights and I was all ears, you know, and providing um, artistic insights to the foundation, right? You know, oh, we need a logo that looks like this, you know, and I remember, you know, as I was getting to know Craig Yale, he's got an artistic angle too. And he made a logo and I, I, I gave him an art school critique of it, right? I said, no, you know, strain your eyes at it and look at it. And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't say what we want it to say. You know, and I was like doing an art school critique. I was providing that kind of insight on the artistic side on a board level, but mostly listening as to governments, governance and stewardship and learning a lot about that. And also making friends in the board. Um, lifelong friends and, and international. This is how I met Ian Batham, Dr. Andrew Barry, um, and and uh, and Dr. Russ from Orange. Right? Uh, these are how I met these people, and they are are grand influences um, upon my my way I conduct myself within the air medical community and my corporate approach to photography. And then I'm able to give them some artistic insights back. I critique their photos <laughs> or I, I speak to them as to how to take better pictures. So yep. that was the foundation board. Um, and I've, I've, I've used that governance on other future boards that I've sat on and the current commission I sit on. So these, these are grand, grand influences. Um, yeah. And you've, you've had similar, uh, you've named, so many of them, uh, several influencers over the year too, that have helped you and yes, in your career. So that's, yeah, yeah. it's a, a long list, you know, Craig Gale I, is like a mentor to me. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate mentors, Dr. Greg Powell, Linda Powell are mentors. Um, Sandy Kincaid Hutton, now yep. Sandy Hutton is a mentor. Dr. Kevin Hutton, who's right. the chair of the Medivac Foundation, who became, has become a great friend. All mentors in my in my air medical career um that have have guided me to make better decisions to make better photography i don't know craig might be a little upset with you because this might be he was the longest podcast that i've ever done this might be uh bumping up or I, it might have surpassed that already so <laughs> well, <good answer. laughs> so um what, what do you like to do for fun well, you know, going to Burning Man, puttering on my RV, uh, playing my farm background of fixing things. You know, I've turned this 1978 Dodge Tioga into something kind of artsy. It's all painted white, and 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 uh, it's a it's a unique thing. Um, I've got uh, I've got it set up so I can have shades on it, and I like that kind of puttering, and I like doing electrical wiring. That just it's there's a logical step to it, and there is a project that uh, Kevin Hutton has in Mexico where I'm the chief electrician on a camp that we're building. So I'm, you know, I'm learning about solar and, and converting that to 110 volt and the aspects of doing it Mexico style without any inspectors. Uh, I like puttering like that sort of thing. I like watching movies and documentaries for sure. There's some amazing stuff on Netflix yes. on that, those documentaries and they're and HBO documentaries. They they're pouring a lot of money into some of these documentaries and they're, they're amazing. 
and 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 um, I I just cannot say enough about some of these. Yeah, I, I taped the show. It was on last night. I think it was MSNBC where they uh, they had interviewed a number of people after 9/11, and then they interviewed them again. Sure. Um, uh, I think it was a two-hour special. I, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I taped it. So. Yeah, there's there's the 9/11 documentaries are coming out for sure. Yeah. So uh, on your uh, uh, relationships must be hard for you because of all your travel and you're in different places. Yeah. Is that? Uh... That's one, that's one part, you know, tough to dwell on that. Um, there's been <laughs> on that. And, and, you know, I, 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 uh, I covet, you know, I, I'm jealous of other photographers who have, you know, got a partner in life that, that is part of their photo team or is just behind them 110% behind the scenes. Um, I'm jealous of that. And, you know, I tried doing that in art school by finding, finding a mate and starting off that way, because I know of other art school couples that have flourished in their business because there's a yin and yang, or there's a creative process. Um, and then there's just a partner in your life to maybe have more fun instead of working all the time and finding that you you love your RV <laughs> because yeah. you're working on that. Um, that has been, that has been tough. And, you know, uh, maybe that's why there was the Memorial Lights after a bad heartbreak. Um, I take them hard. It's not easy. And I'm just looking for somebody to be on my team. Yeah. Uh, I've taken several shinings to several. There's amazing flight nurses out there and I'm still, you know, hopefully they're watching this. I really like them. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they're so, amazing. <laughs> so Mark is available, everyone. So, uh, yeah. Um, I, uh, my single, single thing. I had a cat and, and that, that little kitty cat, Boo Kitty, who I had since 2006 or seven, um, she was my everything. You know, she was ironically probably one of the longest relationships I've had with a female apart from my mother or my sister. <laughs> um, and, and Boo Kitty was really important to me. And she even traveled to California and she was fostered by Kevin and Sandy Hutton for a while. So, you know, I, I'd be house sitting for them and watching the dog and Boo Kitty was there too. And, and uh, she didn't travel to other places, but she traveled to California. Then I brought her back last year to Canada and uh, you know, she was with me during COVID and very important little kitty cat, um, small in nature, independently independent, sometimes cranky, but always slept on the foot of my bed. And uh, unfortunately she went missing this past July. Oh. And that, that broke my heart. That, yeah. That, she was my little rock and, and it's taken me several weeks to kind of get through that. And I understand people who lost pets before it's serious. And I knew that was coming for me too, but I just wasn't expecting it. So how, hit, how old uh, was she when she was? Yeah. 14. And she was oh. getting acting younger. She was getting into her groove again with my mom and dad and she was lost outside and, and yeah, boo is important. And yeah, and, uh, I know the loss that other pet owners have had and it's, it's traumatic. And I, I just haven't, I haven't made a tribute post for her on social media yet. I should, you know, like Waldy lost his dog, Oscar, and he wrote a letter to Oscar. And, you know, I know Tammy lost her, her pooch and, and, and your horse and her horse. Yeah, these animals yeah. are important to our yeah. us. And I'll write that tribute to Boo eventually, but it just stunk too much. And, you know, love the iphone but once in a while they would pull up those memories all of a sudden like oh yeah I that i know what that's like i have a 
Cat, I have to close the door because uh, he likes to photo bomb, you know, bomb in the background uh, running across uh, when I do things. So when I'm recording a podcast, I keep him in the other room. Uh, so, um, so Mark, uh, I think we are going to set the record. So is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? Um, well, we haven't mentioned. I want to continue shooting the air medical uh, community. I want to expand that more. I think I'd like to do more portraits. Um, you know, some huh. of the old timers, I'd love to do portraits. You know, some of the relationships I've garnered, I'd like to keep expanding that. You know, I'm, 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 I'm friends with Sergey and Elena Sikorsky, um, which is a significant thing. And they wrote a dear, wonderful letter of reference that was part of my green card application. Oh, and, great. you know, it made me blush when I read it. And, and you know, other letters um, from other individuals made me blush um on that uh, i'd like to continue shooting obviously in my community i'd like to expand the memorial lights which i'm doing this this october 30th and you know there's some pressure to make it happen but but i love installations and i'm burning man trained and i will make it i'll make it memorable for the water fountain park you just see people say hey that's where you know they film logan's run but that's also where they had mark manny's memorial lights yeah i'm going to do that um I want to continue travel more. I want to continue my, I'd love to live in Dubai part-time if I could. Really? You know, the way it works there, you know, I could do it at least part-time. Um, I'm working on that. You know, once Expo subsides, because it's pretty crazy time right now in Dubai for Expo, it's a city of the future, but it's growing. And to get around Dubai is amazing. You don't really need a car anymore. Um, eventually they'll have the flying taxis first, you know, um, that's where it'll happen. Uh, but I also like, would also like to, uh, you know, expand my, my artistic influences. And that's what I'm doing now. Um, through, through friends, through Sandy Hutton back in 2019, she was friends with the council members on the city of Solana Beach. Oh, yes. Solana, about 20 miles north of San Diego. A wonderful little beach community. And not influenced by La Jolla, not influenced by Del Mar, but we're, we believe we're better. And so I've lived part-time in, in uh, Solana Beach for years, house-sitting for the Huttons, as well as uh, taking a break when I could, you know. And LAX is a good airport to fly out of. And there's a train, train station right in Solana Beach. You can take the train basically almost to the airport. Uh, Solana Beach. So back in 2019... Sandy spoke to one of the council members, said there's an opening on the Public Arts Commission in Solana Beach. And the council member said, well, I'd, I'd support his nomination because he's got this Burning Man background and artistic background, and it sounds like he likes art. So I fill out the form. I was nominated and appointed by the city of Solana Beach Council in October 2019 to sit as a commissioner on the Public Arts Commission of Solana Beach. So. Oh was sworn in in december 2019 you know so as a canadian i'm swearing in on bibles <coughs> and and uh swearing to protect the constitution of the united states the constitution of california the people of california and then i also right in front of the city secretary i said and the queen <laughs> <laughs> yes and, and uh uh i've sat as a commissioner now on the city of solana beach and and uh um being a public official and circling back to the governance I learned through, you know, the Medivac Foundation and sitting through Ames board meetings and understanding 
sometimes there were conflicts and how you guys solved it, right? I, and sometimes not solved it. And I didn't like, you know, sometimes the way it worked out. I learned from that board experience and I, I am applying it to my commissioner, my commissioner uh, experience. I really am. And, and uh, uh, that I'm helping now on the temporary art subcommittee and I'm trying to coordinate, coordinate new pieces of art around my town. I'm trying to help my city councilors understand the aesthetics of a town because I had a friend, my friend, Paul, uh, Paul Hanlon back in Alberta, he's a city planner and he influenced me years and years ago about why sidewalks are the width they are, why there's setbacks, why, why can't you build this and that, right? And I'm applying that experience too as a commissioner on the Public Arts Commission to help people understand we do little things to improve our city and the aesthetics of it. We could, you know, my hope is to turn Solana Beach into an art destination that you get there by Amtrak. Yeah, wow. A wonderful station. And we're right down the line from Los Angeles. And, you know, I'm, you know, not that I'm an ad. Well, yeah, this is an ad for Amtrak. I do travel by Amtrak when I can. I love the train and yeah. I can get work done. A, a regular class seat is as big as business. You get power, you can walk around and you can stop and you look out the window and you see stuff. So, you know, as a, uh, as a, uh, as a commissioner, um, I'm pretty proud of that that aspect and you know there i am oh there you are yeah sitting in front of an american flag but that's that's what i've been uh pursuing a little bit and you know writing reports again based on my foundation board experience and yeah, that's so great i mean it's uh something different but yet related you know and uh what you're doing i hope to apply that too you know kevin and sandy hutton foundation are are working on some new big things and, and, you know, future announcements like the next patient of the year uh, recognition at the AMTC, you know, they sponsored this, this calendar, the, the, uh, the care flight calendar mm -hmm. the foundation, and they've got other big plans. And I, I hope to assist them with that um, based on my experience. So Solana beach, other places are in my future, Dubai, maybe the little bit of the Bahamas um, again, circling back to I'm single. And so, uh, <laughs> that's, that's where I'm at and, yeah. and there's big things at play. So that's, uh, that's fantastic, Mark. Well, it has been, it has really been a pleasure having you on the podcast and, um, I just loved learning new things, uh, as I said earlier about people and you're certainly one of them because I've known you for many, many years, but I'll didn't realize, that. uh, all the stuff. So my first American chair. And, yeah, and, that's right. You, know, uh, <laughs> you volunteered me for the CPR committee when I was only asking. What it was, I was only making an inquiry. <laughs> yeah. You're on, you're on, man. Uh, yeah, so, so. Thanks for years of experience of providing, you know, different insights to the air medical community, the Ames board, and now your, your, uh, your work in media and, and, uh, this is this is extremely unique. Um, yeah, it's 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 been fun, you know. And I started the video stuff too. And I, I you, know, you showed that we could do some things you can't do on audio, you know, yeah. because you can show some pictures and stuff. But um, um, it's it's been fun, and I think it's I've I, I actually started all this back in two thousand nine. Uh, I was between positions and was doing podcasts i was doing it in for bicycling and skiing too but um i just really enjoy uh 
interviewing people. It's just something that's uh, fun to do and learning about them. Um, I probably wouldn't be good for regular news broadcasts because they'd be cutting <laughs> my time. But uh, I, I think it you need to to take take the time to really learn about people and understand. So and the podcast itself is is growing, and you know that's another tangent. I'm working with my uh, investigative reporter friend Steve Gregory of KFI, and you know I'm that's taking me down new avenues. And you know I've yet to post it, but you know I followed him on a uh, on a trip to Venice Beach where we were he was interviewing homeless, and I was shooting photos to supplement the the podcast, the radio interview, so yes. then they put people to the to the website. Yeah, and photos there that complement Steve's podcast. And yeah, I'm I'm definitely I, I listen to a lot of different podcasts. I really uh, enjoy, uh, you know, just some things you can learn that you can't on regular media because they're always under time constraints. Constantly. Yeah. So you're under a good thing, Ed. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks again, Mark, for being on the the podcast. It's really been a pleasure. You bet. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com, iTunes, or on the Air Medical Today YouTube channel. Air Medical Today is also on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, and YouTube, and you can find the links on the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor or provide feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. You can follow Stan on Facebook at facebook.com slash stanley.reeves.39. Take care and continue to be safe with this pandemic. Thank you.